Supreme Court Update Miccosukee Cree First Nation and Canada Governor General and Council 2018 SCC 40 The judgment of Chief Justice Wagner and Justices Karakatsanis and Gascon was delivered by Justice Karakatsanis. Part 1 Overview Paragraph 1 since this court's landmark decision in Haida Nation and British Columbia Minister of Forests, 2004, SCC 73, the duty to consult has played a critical role in ensuring that Aboriginal and treaty rights receive meaningful protection. Grounded in the honour of the Crown, this duty requires the Crown to consult, and if appropriate, accommodate Aboriginal peoples before taking action that may adversely affect their asserted or established rights under Section 35 of the Constitution Act, 1982. The appellant, Miccosukee Cree First Nation, argues the Crown had a duty to consult them on the development of environmental legislation that had the potential to adversely affect their treaty rights to hunt, trap, and fish. The court must therefore answer a vexing question it has left open in the past. Does the duty to consult apply to the lawmaking process? 2. I conclude that it does not. Two constitutional principles, the separation of powers and parliamentary sovereignty, dictate that it is rarely appropriate for courts to scrutinize the lawmaking process. The process of lawmaking does not only take place in Parliament, Rather, it begins with the development of legislation. When ministers develop legislation, they act in a parliamentary capacity. As such, courts should exercise restraint when dealing with this process. Extending the duty to consult doctrine to legislative process would oblige the judiciary to step beyond the core of its institutional role and threaten the respective balance between the three pillars of our democracy. It would also transpose a consultation framework and judicial remedies developed in the context of executive action into the distinct realm of the legislature. Thus, the duty to consult is ill-suited to the lawmaking process. The lawmaking process does not constitute, quote, crown conduct, end quote, that triggers the duty to consult. 3. That is not to suggest, however, that when the legislation undermines Section 35 rights, Aboriginal groups would be left without a remedy. Clearly, if legislation infringes Section 35, it may be declared invalid pursuant to Section 52 sub 1 of the Constitution Act 1982. Further, the Crown's honour may well require judicial intervention where legislation may adversely affect but does not necessarily infringe Aboriginal or treaty rights. However, the resolution of such questions must be left to another day. In this appeal, the issue was framed in terms of whether the duty to consult doctrine should apply to the lawmaking process. I find that it should not. Part 2. Background. Paragraph 4. The Miccosukee are a band within the meaning of the Indian Act, whose traditional territory is situated primarily in northeastern Alberta. This is a region of immense beauty. It includes, for example, the lands and waters around Lake Athabasca, as well as the Peace Athabasca Delta. This region is home to significant existing and proposed oil sands development. 5. 
The Miccosu are descendants of an Aboriginal group that, along with a number of other First Nations, adhered to Treaty No. 8 with Her Majesty in 1899. Under Treaty No. 8, First Nations ceded a large amount of land, much of what is now northern Alberta, northeastern British Columbia, northwestern Saskatchewan, and the southern portion of the Northwest Territories, to the Crown in exchange for certain guarantees. Among these guarantees was a provision protecting the rights of signatories to hunt, trap, and fish. Quote, and Her Majesty the Queen hereby agrees with the said Indians that they shall have the right to pursue their usual vocations of hunting, trapping, and fishing throughout the tract surrendered as heretofore described, subject to such regulations as may from time to time be made by the government of the country acting under the authority of Her Majesty, and saving and accepting such tracts as may be required or taken up from time to time for settlement, mining, lumbering, trading, or other purposes. 6. The Miccosu's claim relates to two pieces of omnibus legislation that had significant effects on Canada's environmental protection regime. In 2012, the Federal Minister of Finance introduced Bill C-38, enacted as the Jobs, Growth, and Long-Term Prosperity Act, which received royal assent in June 2012. Later that year, the minister introduced Bill C-45, enacted as the Jobs and Growth Act 2012, which received royal assent in December 2012. 7. These bills were broad in scope. Together, they resulted in the repeal of the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act and the enactment of the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act 2012. They also resulted in significant amendments to the protection regime under the Fisheries Act, as well as amendments to the Species at Risk Act and the Navigable Waters Protection Act, which was renamed the Navigation Protection Act. 8. The Miccosu were not consulted on either of these omnibus bills at any stage in their development or prior to the granting of royal assent. 9. The Miccosu brought an application for judicial review under sections 18 and 18.1 of the Federal Courts Act seeking various declarations and orders concerning the respondent minister's duty to consult them with respect to the introduction and development of omnibus bills. 10. The reviewing judge, Justice Hughes, determined that the proceedings were not precluded by Section 2 sub 2 of the Federal Courts Act and that they presented a justiciable issue. He explained that judicial intervention in the lawmaking process is inconsistent with the separation of powers. Therefore, if the development of a policy by ministers triggers a duty to consult, the judiciary cannot enforce this duty before a bill is introduced into Parliament. The reviewing judge then turned to determining whether a duty to consult was triggered in this case. He assumed that the steps that cabinet ministers take during the lawmaking process prior to introducing a bill into Parliament can constitute crown conduct triggering the duty to consult. He found that the proposals contained in the omnibus bills may adversely affect the Miccosu's treaty rights. Therefore, he concluded that the duty to consult was triggered. The Miccosu were entitled to notice of the provisions of the omnibus bills that reasonably might have been expected to affect their treaty rights, as well as an opportunity to make submissions. The federal court granted a declaration to this effect. 11. 
The Federal Court of Appeal allowed the appeal. The majority, Justices de Montigny and Webb, concluded that the reviewing judge erred by conducting a judicial review of legislative action contrary to the Federal Courts Act. In its view, when ministers develop policy, they act in a legislative capacity, and their actions are immune from judicial review. The majority also held that the reviewing judge's decision was inconsistent with the principles of parliamentary sovereignty, the separation of powers, and parliamentary privilege. These principles dictate that courts cannot supervise the legislative process. Further, imposing a duty to consult in the legislative process would be impractical and would feather Parliament's lawmaking capacity. 12. Concurring, Justice Peltier concluded that the Federal Courts Act did not preclude the Miccosu's claim. While the federal courts may not have been validly seized of an application for judicial review, he determined that it nonetheless had jurisdiction over the matter under Section 17 of the Federal Courts Act, as the Miccosus sought relief against the Crown. Justice Peltier noted that it may be problematic to conclude that legislative action can never trigger a duty to consult. However, he concluded that the duty to consult is not triggered by legislation of general application that causes effects which are not limited to the specific rights at issue. Since the omnibus legislation was of this nature, the duty to consult was not triggered. Part 3. Analysis. Subpart A. Jurisdiction. Paragraph 13. For the federal court to have jurisdiction over a claim, it must have a statutory grant of jurisdiction. See Windsor City and Canadian Transit Company, 2016, SCC 54. 14. Two potential statutory grants of jurisdiction are live in this appeal. Section 17 and 18 of the Federal Courts Act. I will address each of them in turn. Subheading, Section 17 of the Federal Courts Act. Paragraph 15. The Mikasu did not advance Section 17 as a basis for jurisdiction at first instance or in their submissions before this court. However, Justice Peltier of the Federal Court of Appeal held that Section 17 was the a basis for jurisdiction in this case. Further, while the Miccosu's initial application was framed as a judicial review under Section 18, not Section 17, the federal court's rules provide that, quote, an originating document shall not be set aside only on the ground that a different originating document should have been used, end quote, Rule 57. 16. Section 17, sub 1 of the Act provides that, quote, the federal court has concurrent original jurisdiction in all cases in which relief is claimed against the Crown, end quote. Further, Section 2, Sub 1 of the Act defines the Crown as, quote, Her Majesty in Right of Canada, end quote. However, I agree that Her Majesty in Right of Canada does not extend to executive actors when they are exercising, quote, legislative powers, end quote. And that's from Fédération Franco-Tenoise and Canada, 2001 FCA 220. Subheading 2. Section 18 of the Federal Courts Act. Paragraph 17. The Mikasu brought this case as an application for judicial review of the development of the omnibus legislation by the respondent ministers under sections 18 and 18.1 of the Federal Courts Act. I agree with the conclusions and reasons of the majority of the Federal Court of Appeal that the Federal Court was not validly seized of an application for judicial review in this case. 18. The Federal Courts Act 
does not allow for judicial review of parliamentary activities. Indeed, sections 18 and 18.1 only grant the federal court jurisdiction to judicially review action taken by, quote, any federal board, commission, or other tribunal, end quote. A, quote, federal board, commission, or other tribunal, end quote, is defined in the Act subject to certain exceptions, as a body exercising statutory powers or powers under an order made pursuant to a prerogative of the Crown. See Section 2. See also Strickland and Canada, Attorney General, 2015, SCC 37. Section 2, Sub 2 specifies that, quote, Federal Board, Commission, or other tribunal, end quote, does not include, quote, the Senate, the House of Commons, any committee or member of either house, end quote. Thus, I agree that Section 2, Sub 2 is designed, quote, to preclude judicial review of the legislative process at large, end quote. That's from the Court of Appeal Reasons. As I will explain further below, cabinet and ministers do not act pursuant to statutory powers when they develop legislation. Rather, they act pursuant to the powers under Part 4 of the Constitution Act 1867. As such, when developing legislation, they do not act as a, quote, federal board, commission, or other tribunal, end quote, within the meaning of Section 2. See Shade in Canada Attorney General, a 2003 federal court case. 19. Nonetheless, the parties have made extensive submissions on the substantive issues in this appeal. In these circumstances, it is important for the court to determine whether the duty to consult applies to the lawmaking process. Part B, the honor of the crown and the duty to consult. Paragraph 20. The duty to consult is grounded in the honor of the crown. See Haida Nation. Thus, I turn first to the principles that underlie the honor of the crown and its relationship with the duty to consult. 21. The honor of the crown is a foundational principle of Aboriginal law and governs the relationship between the crown and Aboriginal peoples. It arises from, quote, the crown's assertion of sovereignty over an Aboriginal people and de facto control of land and resources that were formerly in the control of that people, end quote, and goes back to the Royal Proclamation of 1763. See Haida Nation and see also Manitoba Métis Federation, Inc., and Canada Attorney General, 2013, SCC 14. It recognizes that the tension between the Crown's assertion of sovereignty and the pre-existing sovereignty, rights and occupation of Aboriginal peoples, creates a special relationship that requires that the Crown act honorably in its dealings with Aboriginal peoples. See Manitoba Métis, see also B. Slattery, Aboriginal Rights and the Honor of the Crown. 2005 Supreme Court Law Review 22 The underlying purpose of the honor of the crown is to facilitate the reconciliation of these interests. See Manitoba Métis. One way that it does so is by promoting negotiation and the just settlement of Aboriginal claims as an alternative to litigation and judicially imposed outcomes. See Taku River, Clinket, First Nation, and British Columbia. Project Assessment Director, 2004, SCC 74. This endeavor of reconciliation is a first principle of Aboriginal law. 23. The honor of the Crown is always at stake in its dealings with Aboriginal peoples. See 
Crown Against Badger, 1996 Supreme Court of Canada case. See also Manitoba Métis. As it emerges from the Crown's assertion of sovereignty, it binds the Crown qua sovereign. Indeed, it has been found to apply when the Crown acts either through legislation or executive conduct. See the Crown Against Sparrow, 1990 Supreme Court case. The Crown Against Vanderpeet, 1996 Supreme Court case, per Justice McLaughlin as she then was, dissenting. See also Haida Nation, see also Manitoba Métis. 24. As this court stated in Haida Nation, the honor of the crown, quote, is not a mere incantation, but rather a core precept that finds its application in concrete principles, end quote, and, quote, gives rise to different duties in different circumstances, end quote. When engaged, it imposes, quote, a heavy obligation, end quote, on the crown, Manitoba Métis. Indeed, because of the close relationship between the honor of the crown and section 35, the honor of the crown has been described as a, quote, constitutional principle, end quote. See Beckman and Little Salmon slash Carmack's First Nation, 2010, SCC 53. That said, this court has made clear that the duties that flow from the honor of the crown will vary with the situations in which it is engaged, Manitoba Métis. Determining what constitutes honorable dealing and what specific obligations are imposed by the honor of the crown depends heavily on the circumstances. Haida Nation, Taku River, Rio Tinto, Alcan Inc., and Carrier Sakani Tribal Council, 2010, SCC 43. 25. The duty to consult is one such obligation. In instances where the Crown contemplates executive action that may adversely affect Section 35 rights, the honor of the Crown has been found to give rise to a justiciable duty to consult. See, for example, Haida Nation, Taku River, Cree First Nation, and Canada, Minister of Canadian Heritage, 2005 SCC 69, and Little Salmon. This obligation has been applied in the context of statutory decision makers that, while not part of the executive, act be on behalf of the Crown. See Clyde River, Hamlet, and Petroleum Geoservices, Inc., 2017, SCC 40. These cases demonstrate that, in certain circumstances, Crown conduct may constitute an, quote, infringement, end quote, of established Section 35 rights. However, acting unilaterally in the way that may adversely affect such rights does not reflect well on the honor of the Crown and may thus warrant intervention on judicial review. 26. The duty to consult jurisprudence makes clear that the duty to consult is best understood as a, quote, valuable adjunct, end quote, to the honor of the Crown. See Little Salmon. The duty to consult ensures the Crown acts honorably by preventing it from acting unilaterally in ways that undermine Section 35 rights. This promotes reconciliation between the Crown and Aboriginal peoples, first by providing procedural protections to Section 35 rights, and second by encouraging negotiation and just settlement as an alternative to the cost, delay, and acrimony of litigating Section 35 infringement claims. See Clyde River, see also Haida Nation, see also Cree. 27. 
The duty to consult has been recognized in a variety of contexts. For example, in Haida Nation, this court recognized the duty to consult when the Crown contemplated the replacement and transfer of tree farm licenses that had the potential to affect asserted but unproven Aboriginal rights. In Miccosu Cree, the court recognized that the contemplation of, quote, taking up, unquote, lands under Treaty No. 8 could adversely affect the Miccosu's rights under the treaty, and thus required consultation. Crown conduct need not have an immediate impact on lands and resources to trigger the duty to consult. This court has recognized that, quote, high-level management decisions or structural changes to a resource's management, end quote, may also trigger a consultative duty. See Carrier Sakani. However, to date, the duty to consult has only been applied to executive conduct and conduct taken on behalf of the executive. 28. The Miccosu's treaty rights are protected under Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982, and the Crown's dealings with those rights engage the honor of the Crown. Here, the Miccosu argue that their hunting, trapping, and fishing rights under Treaty No. 8 may be adversely affected by the Crown's conduct. This court has repeatedly found that the honor of the Crown governs treaty making and implementation, and requires the Crown to act in a way that accomplishes the intended purposes of the treaties and solemn promises it makes to Aboriginal peoples. See Manitoba Métis, Miccosu Cree, The Crown Against Marshall, 1999 Supreme Court of Canada, and see also Badger. Treaty agreements are sacred. It is always assumed that the Crown intends to fulfill its promises. No appearance of, quote, sharp dealing, end quote, will be permitted. See Badger. 29. However, the question in this appeal is whether the honor of the Crown gives rise to a justiciable duty to consult when ministers develop legislation that could adversely affect the Miccosu's treaty rights. When confronted with a novel case like this, the court must determine whether the duty to consult is the appropriate means to uphold the honor of the Crown. This court has explicitly left open the question of whether the lawmaking process is, quote, crown conduct, end quote, that triggers the duty to consult. See Carrier Sakani, see also Clyde River. I turn to analyzing this issue now. Subsection C, the duty to consult during the lawmaking process, paragraph 30. The Miccosu submit that the development of policy by ministers leading to the formulation and introduction of a bill that may affect Section 35 rights triggers the duty to consult. In their view, ministers act in an executive capacity, not a parliamentary capacity, when developing legislation. Thus, concluding that legislative development triggers the duty to consult does not offend the separation of powers or parliamentary supremacy. Further, Concluding otherwise would leave some claimants whose Section 35 rights are affected by legislation without an effective remedy. Indeed, legislation may abolish Crown oversight or involvement in resource development and thereby remove Crown conduct that would trigger the duty to consult. Additionally, requiring claimants to proceed by way of a Section 35 infringement claim to vindicate their rights places an onerous burden on them. 31. The respondents submit that the development of legislation by ministers is legislative action that does not trigger the duty to consult. This would be inconsistent with parliamentary sovereignty and the separation of powers. These principles dictate that courts cannot supervise the lawmaking process. The respondents ground their argument on the premise that ministers act in a parliamentary capacity, not an executive capacity, when developing legislation. Furthermore, they suggest that, 
while the duty to consult is not triggered by legislative action. This does not leave claimants without an effective remedy. Once legislation is passed, it can be challenged under the Sparrow framework if it infringes Section 35 rights. Additionally, decisions made under the new or amended legislation may trigger the duty to consult. 32. For the reasons that follow, I conclude that the lawmaking process, that is the development, passage, and enactment of legislation, does not trigger the duty to consult. The separation of powers and parliamentary supremacy dictate that courts should forbear from interfering with the lawmaking process. Therefore, the duty to consult doctrine is ill-suited for legislative action. 33. The Mikasu ask us to recognize that the duty to consult applies to ministers in the development of legislation. There is no doubt overlap between executive and legislative functions in Canada. Cabinet, for instance, is a, quote, combining committee, a hyphen, which joins, a buckle which fastens, the legislative part of the state to the executive part of the state, end quote. From Reference Re Canada Assistance Plan BC, 1991 Supreme Court of Canada case, quoting W. Badgett, the English Constitution, 1872. I do not accept, however, the Mikasu submission that ministers act in an executive capacity when they develop legislation. The legislative development at issue was not conducted pursuant to any statutory authority. Rather, it was an exercise of legislative powers derived from Part 4 of the Constitution Act 1867. As the majority of the Court of Appeal noted, the departmental statutes relied upon by the Mikasu to show that the ministers acted in an executive capacity when developing legislation do not, quote, refer even implicitly to the development of legislation for introduction into Parliament, end quote. See Department of Indian Affairs and Northern Development Act, Department of the Environment Act, Department of Fisheries and Oceans Act, Department of Transport Act, Department of Natural Resources Act, and Financial Administration Act. 34. The development of legislation by ministers is part of the lawmaking process, and this process is generally protected from judicial oversight. Further, this court's jurisprudence makes clear that if cabinet is restrained from introducing legislation, then this effectively restrains parliament. See Canada Assistance Plan. This court has emphasized the importance of safeguarding the lawmaking process from judicial supervision on numerous occasions. In reference re resolution to amend the Constitution, 1981 Supreme Court of Canada, a majority of this court stated that, quote, courts come into the picture when legislation is enacted and not before, end quote. In Canada Assistance Plan, this court underscored that, quote, the formulation and introduction of a bill are part of the legislative process with which courts will not meddle, end quote. 35. Long-standing constitutional principles underlie this reluctance to supervise the lawmaking process. The separation of powers is, quote, an essential feature of our Constitution. See Wells and Newfoundland, 1999, Supreme Court of Canada. See also Ontario and Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario, 2013, Supreme Court of Canada. It recognizes that each branch of government, quote, will be unable to fulfill its role if it is unduly interfered with by the others, end quote. And that's from Criminal Lawyers Association. It dictates that, quote, the courts and parliament strive to respect each other's role in the conduct of public affairs, end quote. As such, 
there is no doubt that Parliament's legislative activity should, quote, proceed unimpeded by any external body or institution, including the courts, end quote. From Canada, House of Commons and Vade, 2005, SCC 30. Recognizing that a duty to consult applies during the lawmaking process may require courts to improperly trespass onto the legislature's domain. 36. Parliamentary sovereignty mandates that the legislature can make or unmake any law it wishes within the confines of its constitutional authority. While the adoption of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms transformed the Canadian system of government, quote, to a significant extent from the system of parliamentary supremacy to one of constitutional supremacy, end quote, from Reference Re-Succession of Quebec, 1998 Supreme Court of Canada decision. Democracy remains one of the unwritten principles of the Constitution. See Succession Reference. Recognizing that the elected legislature has specific consultation obligations, may constrain it in pursuing its mandate, and therefore undermine its ability to act as the voice of the electorate. 37. Parliamentary privilege, a related constitutional principle, also demonstrates that the lawmaking process is largely beyond the reach of judicial interference. It is defined as, quote, the sum of the privileges, immunities, and powers enjoyed by the Senate, the House of Commons, and provincial legislative assemblies, and by each member individually, without which they could not discharge their functions, end quote, from Vade. Once a category of parliamentary privilege is established, quote, it is for Parliament, not the courts, to determine whether, in a particular case, the exercise of the privilege is necessary or appropriate, end quote, from Vade. Canadian jurisprudence makes clear that parliamentary privilege protects control over, quote, debates or proceedings in Parliament, end quote, from Vade. J.P.J. Mango, Parliamentary Immunity in Canada, 2016. See also New Brunswick Broadcasting Co. and Nova Scotia, Speaker of the House of Assembly, 1993 Supreme Court of Canada decision. See also Peter G. Hogg, Constitutional Law of Canada, 5th edition. See also Article 9 of the UK Bill of Rights of 1689. The existence of this privilege generally prevents courts from enforcing procedural constraints on the parliamentary process. 38. Applying the duty to consult doctrine during the lawmaking process will lead to significant judicial incursion into the workings of the legislature. Even if such a duty were only enforced post-enactment, the duty to consult jurisprudence has developed a spectrum of consultation requirements that fit in the context of administrative decision-making processes. Directly transposing such executive requirements into the legislative context would be an inappropriate constraint on legislatures' ability to control their own processes. 39. The administrative law remedies normally available for a breach of a duty to consult would further invite inappropriate judicial intervention into the legislature's domain. The Crown's failure to consult can lead to a number of remedies, including quashing the decision at issue or granting injunctive relief, damages, or an order to carry out consultation prior to proceeding further with the proposed action. See Carrier Sakani, Clyde River, and Kent Roach, Constitutional Remedies in Canada, 2nd edition. Thus, if a duty to consult applied to the lawmaking process, it would require the judiciary to directly interfere with the development of legislation. I recognize that the Mikasu only sought declaratory relief in this case. However, their rationale for seeking declaratory relief was that Canada was considering changing its environmental protection framework at the time of this litigation. 
the Mikasu acknowledged that it may be appropriate in future litigation for courts to consider granting ancillary relief requiring further consultation on the challenge legislation, a stay of further implementation of the challenge legislation, or judicial supervision. Such remedies could significantly fetter the will of Parliament. 40. Applying a duty to consult to the development of legislation by ministers, as the Mikasu propose, also raises practical concerns. If the duty to consult is triggered by the development of legislation by ministers, but not later in the lawmaking process, this may limit the possibility of meaningful accommodation. Changes made to the proposed bill at the policy development stage to address concerns raised during consultation may be undone by Parliament, as it is free to amend the proposed law. Additionally, the introduction of private members' bills would not trigger the duty, rendering the approach incongruous. The Mikasu's proposed approach could also be difficult to apply where ministers pursue both executive conduct and parliamentary conduct in the cabinet decision-making process. In the long chain of events contributing to the development of legislation, disentangling what steps the duty to consult applies to because they are executive and what actions are immune because they are parliamentary would be an enormously difficult task. 41. For these reasons, the duty to consult doctrine is ill-suited to be applied directly to the lawmaking process. 42. That said, parliamentary sovereignty and the separation of powers are not the only constitutional principles relevant to this appeal. The duty to consult was recognized to help protect the constitutional rights enshrined in Section 35 and uphold the honor of the Crown, itself a constitutional principle. See Little Salmon. 43. The Mikasu argue that if the duty to consult does not apply to the legislative process, Aboriginal or treaty rights will be subject to inconsistent protection. When the executive or a statutory decision maker takes action that may affect asserted or established Section 35 rights, the honour of the Crown imposes a duty to consult. As noted above, this prevents the Crown from acting unilaterally in a way that could erode Section 35 rights and promotes the ongoing process of reconciliation. In contrast, if the state takes the same action through legislative means, the Aboriginal communities whose rights are potentially affected may be left without effective recourse. If such legislation infringes Section 35 rights, it may be declared of no force and effect pursuant to Section 52 of the Constitution Act 1982. See Sparrow. However, if the effects of the legislation do not rise to the level of infringement, or if the rights are merely asserted and not established, an Aboriginal group will not be able to successfully challenge the constitutional validity of the legislation through a sparrow claim. Further, there may be situations where legislation effectively removes further consultation obligations by removing Crown decision-making that would otherwise have triggered the duty to consult. 44. I accept that these are valid concerns. It is of little import to Aboriginal peoples whether it is the executive or parliament which acts in a way that may adversely affect their rights. The relationship of Aboriginal peoples, quote, with the Crown or Sovereign has never depended on the particular representatives of the Crown involved, end quote. And that's from Williams Lake Indian Band and Canada, Aboriginal Affairs in Northern Development, 2018, SCC 4, quoting Mitchell and Peggy Indian Band per Chief Justice Dixon. As noted above, the honor of the crown binds the crown qua sovereign. Indeed, permitting the crown to do by one means, that which it cannot do by another, would undermine the endeavor of reconciliation, which animates Aboriginal law. 
The principle of reconciliation and not rigid formalism should drive the development of Aboriginal law. 45. Given these concerns, it is worth noting that the duty to consult is not the only means to give effect to the honour of the Crown when Aboriginal or treaty rights may be adversely affected by legislation. Other doctrines may be developed to ensure the consistent protection of Section 35 rights and to give full effects to the honour of the Crown through review of enacted legislation. 46. For example, it may not be consistent with Section 35 to legislate in a way that effectively removes future Crown conduct, which would otherwise trigger the duty to consult. I note that in Ross River, Dena Council and Yukon, 2012, YKCA, the Yukon Court of Appeal held that, quote, statutory regimes that do not allow for consultation and fail to provide any other equally effective means to acknowledge and accommodate Aboriginal claims are defective and cannot be allowed to subsist. End quote. See also Constitution Act, 1982, Section 52, Sub 1, 47. Other forms of recourse may also be available. For example, declaratory relief may be appropriate in a case where legislation is enacted that is not consistent with the Crown's duty of honourable dealing towards Aboriginal peoples. See Manitoba Métis. A declaration is available without a cause of action. Further, as this Court has previously held, Declaratory relief may be an appropriate remedy, even in situations where other forms of relief would be inconsistent with the separation of powers. See Canada Prime Minister and Cotter, 2010, SCC 3. 48. To be clear, legislation cannot be challenged on the basis that the legislature failed to fulfill the duty to consult. The duty to consult doctrine does not apply to the legislature. However, if other forms of recourse are available, the extent of any consultation may well be a relevant consideration, as it was in Sparrow, when assessing whether the enactment is consistent with constitutional principles. In Sparrow, this court held that, when there has been a prima facie infringement of a Section 35 right, the, quote, first consideration, end quote, in determining whether the legislation or action can be justified is the honor of the Crown. And, an important part of that inquiry is whether the Aboriginal group in question was consulted on the impugned measure. See Sparrow, see also Badger, see also Chicota Nation and British Columbia, 2014, SCC 44. See also Dalgamook and British Columbia, 1997 Supreme Court of Canada decision. 49. However, the issue of whether other protections are or should be available is not squarely before the court in this appeal. As discussed above, the federal court was not validly seized of the application in this issue, so no relief can be granted. Moreover, the Mikasu framed their claim exclusively around whether the duty to consult doctrine should apply to the legislative process. We have not received sufficient submissions on how to ensure that the honor of the crown is upheld other than through the specific mechanism of the duty to consult. A different context attracts different considerations. I would note that there are important distinctions between judicial review of administrative action in the duty to consult context and judicial review of legislation. See Doré and Barreau du Québec, 2012, SCC 12. Part 4. Conclusion. Paragraph 50. For the reasons set out above, I conclude that no aspect of the lawmaking process, 
from the development of legislation to its enactment, triggers a duty to consult. And the duty to consult context, quote, crown conduct, end quote, has only been found to include executive action or action taken on behalf of the executive. I would not expand the application of the duty to consult doctrine to the legislative process. 51. Finally, my conclusions respecting the duty to consult do not apply to the process by which subordinate legislation, such as regulations or rules, is adopted, as such conduct is clearly executive rather than parliamentary. See N. Banks, the duty to consult, and the legislative process. But what about reconciliation? 2016, online. Furthermore, this conclusion does not affect the enforceability of treaty provisions implemented through legislation that explicitly require pre-legislative consultation. See, for example, NISCA Final Agreement Chapter 11 and NISCA Final Agreement Act. Manner and form requirements, i.e. procedural restraints on enactments imposed by legislation are binding. See Hogg. See also Crown Against Mercure, 1988 Supreme Court of Canada decision. 52. I add this. Even though the duty to consult does not apply to the lawmaking process, it does not necessarily follow that once enacted, legislation that may adversely affect Section 35 rights is consistent with the honour of the Crown. The consultation principles, such as the separation of powers and parliamentary sovereignty, that preclude the application of the duty to consult during the legislative process do not absolve the Crown of its duty to act honourably or limit the application of Section 35. While an Aboriginal group will not be able to challenge legislation on the basis that the duty to consult was not fulfilled, other protections may well be recognized in future cases. Simply because the duty to consult doctrine, as it has evolved to regulate executive conduct, is inapplicable in the legislative sphere, does not mean that the Crown qua sovereign is absolved of its obligation to conduct itself honorably. 53. For these reasons, I would dismiss the appeal. The reasons of Justice Isabella and Martin were delivered by Justice Isabella. Paragraph 54. I agree with Justice Karakatsanis that the appeal should be dismissed on the grounds that judicial review under the Federal Courts Act is not available for the actions of federal ministers in the parliamentary process. See sections 2 sub 2, 18 and 18.1. But in my respectful view, the enactment of legislation with the potential to adversely affect rights protected by Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982 does give rise to a duty to consult and legislation enacted in breach of that duty may be challenged directly for relief. 55. The honour of the Crown governs the relationship between the Government of Canada and Indigenous peoples. This obligation of honour gives rise to a duty to consult and accommodate that applies to all contemplated government conduct with the potential to adversely affect asserted or established Aboriginal and Treaty rights, including, in my view, legislative action. The duty to consult arises based on the effect, not on the source, of government action. The Crown's overarching responsibility to act honorably in all its dealings with Indigenous peoples does not depend on the formal label applied to the type of action that the government takes with respect to Aboriginal rights and interests protected by Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982. As a constitutional imperative, the honor of the Crown cannot be undermined, let alone extinguished, by the legislature's assertion of parliamentary sovereignty. 56. 
The analysis in this case must begin with the fundamental principle of Canadian Aboriginal law that the government's relationship with Indigenous peoples is governed by the honour of the Crown. See Haida Nation and British Columbia Minister of Forests, 2004 Supreme Court case. See also Beckman and Little Salmon slash Carmax First Nation, 2010 Supreme Court case. According to this principle, servants of the Crown must conduct themselves with honour when acting on behalf of the Sovereign. See Manitoba Métis Federation, Inc. and Canada Attorney General, 2013 Supreme Court. The honour of the Crown is always at stake in its dealings with Indigenous peoples, whether through the exercise of legislative power, see the Crown Against Sparrow, 1990 Supreme Court case, or executive authority, see the Crown Against Badger, 1996 Supreme Court, and Haida Nation, 57. The position that the honour of the Crown does not bind Parliament strikes me as untenable in light of this Court's Aboriginal law jurisprudence. The honour of the Crown arises from the Crown's de facto control over land and resources previously in the control of Aboriginal peoples, and its asserted sovereignty over those peoples. See Haida Nation, see also Manitoba Métis Federation. At the time of the French and British colonization, Indigenous peoples were living in distinct societies with their own social and political structures, as well as laws and interests in land. See Mitchell and Minister of National Revenue, 2001 Supreme Court of Canada, per Chief Justice McLaughlin. While English policy was to acknowledge and respect certain rights of occupation for Indigenous inhabitants, the underlying premise was that, quote, sovereignty and legislative power, and indeed the underlying title to such lands vested in the crown, end quote. That's from Sparrow. With this assumed sovereignty arose the obligation to treat Aboriginal peoples fairly and honorably. See Mitchell, see also Manitoba Métis Federation. 58. As a result, the ultimate purpose of the honor of the crown is the reconciliation of pre-existing Indigenous societies with the assertion of crown sovereignty. See Manitoba Métis Federation. Reconciliation is the, quote, fundamental objective of the modern law of Aboriginal and treaty rights, end quote. See Miccosoo Cree, First Nation in Canada, Minister of Canadian Heritage, 2005 Supreme Court of Canada decision per Justice Binney. The purpose of Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982 is to facilitate this recognition. See Taku River, 2004 Supreme Court case. 59. The honor of the crown defines the historic relationship between the government and indigenous peoples in which contemporary rights are to be understood. See Sparrow. The honor of the crown has deep roots as a concept in Aboriginal law and can be traced back to the Royal Proclamation of 1763, a fundamental document which this court has described as, quote, analogous to the Magna Carta, end quote. And that's from Calder and Attorney General of British Columbia. 1973 Supreme Court of Canada per Justice Hall. The honour of the Crown has since received constitutional status with the entrenchment of Section 35, and is therefore a constitutional imperative, giving rise to obligations on the Crown which are enforced by the courts. See J. Timothy S. McCabe, The Honour of the Crown and Its Fiduciary Duties to Aboriginal Peoples, 2008. 60. But the honour of the Crown is not itself a cause of action. Rather, it speaks to the way in which the Crown-specific obligations must be fulfilled. See Manitoba Métis Federation. These obligations vary depending on the circumstances. 
In negotiating and applying treaties, the Crown must act with integrity and honour, and avoid even the appearance of sharp dealing. See Haida Nation, see also Badger, see also the Crown Against Marshall, 1999 Supreme Court case. Where the government enacts regulations that infringe on Aboriginal rights, the honour of the Crown demands that those measures be justified. See Sparrow. And when the government contemplates conduct that might adversely affect Aboriginal or treaty rights, the honour of the Crown gives rise to a duty to consult and accommodate. 61. Grounded in the honour of the Crown, the duty to consult arises from the assertion of Crown sovereignty and aims to advance the process of reconciliation. See McCabe, see also Haida Nation. It serves an important role in the, quote, process of fair dealing and reconciliation that begins with the assertion of sovereignty and continues beyond formal claims resolution, end quote, from Haida Nation. Where the duty arises, it requires meaningful consultation between the government and affected groups. This means a meaningful effort by the government to act in a manner that is consistent with the honor of the Crown in that particular context. See Dwight G. Newman, Revisiting the Duty to Consult Aboriginal Peoples, 2014. Consultation obligations can be viewed as falling on a spectrum, which accommodates the different contexts in which more or less consultation is necessary to fulfill its purposes. See Newman, see also Haida Nation. 62. I see this duty as being more than a, quote, means, end quote, to uphold the honor of the crown. The obligation arises because it would not be honorable to make important decisions that have an adverse impact on Aboriginal treaty rights without efforts to consult and, if appropriate, accommodate the, those interests. The Crown must act honorably in defining the rights guaranteed by Section 35 and in reconciling them with the other societal rights and interests. This implies a duty to consult. Hide a nation. The question is not whether the duty to consult is appropriate in the circumstances, but whether the decision is one to which the duty to consult applies. 63. Because the honor of the Crown infuses the entirety of the government's relationship with Indigenous peoples, the duty to consult must apply to all exercises of authority which are subject to scrutiny under Section 35. This includes, in my view, the enactment of legislation. Like the infringement analysis under Sparrow, the duty to consult does not discriminate based on the type of government action, but rather is triggered based on the potential for adverse effects. 64. This conclusion flows from the jurisprudential development of the duty to consult from an aspect of the infringement analysis in Sparrow to an independent obligation in Haida Nation. Sparrow was the court's first opportunity to consider the legal impact of Section 35, and to sketch a framework which would give appropriate weight to the constitutional nature of the words, quote, recognized and affirmed, end quote, from Sparrow. Acknowledging the importance of context and an incremental approach to Section 35, Chief Justice Dixon and Justice Laforet proposed a justificatory test which would require the government to establish not only that it had a valid legislative objective, but that the legislative action was consistent with the honor of the Crown. They held at page 1114, quote, The honor of the crown is at stake in dealings with Aboriginal peoples. The special trust relationship and the responsibility of the government vis-a-vis -vis Aboriginals must be the first consideration in determining whether the legislation or other action in question can be justified, end quote. Determining whether the crown's legislative actions were consistent with the honor of the crown would include 
depending on the circumstances, an inquiry into whether the Aboriginal group in question had been consulted. See Sparrow. See also the Crown Against Nikal, 1996 Supreme Court decision. See also the Crown Against Gladstone, another 1996 Supreme Court decision. 65. Consultation took on an even greater role in Delgamuk and British Columbia, 1997 Supreme Court of Canada decision. An Aboriginal title case where Chief Justice Lemaire first acknowledged that consultation was a procedural, quote, duty, end quote. In his view, while the nature and scope of the obligation would vary with the circumstances, quote, there is always a duty of consultation, end quote. Chief Justice Lemaire drew from his recent comments on the doctrine of priority in Gladstone, which described a right that was both procedural and substantive. Quote, At the stage of justification, the government must demonstrate both that the process by which it allocated the resource and the actual allocation of the resource, which results from that process, reflect the prior interest of Aboriginal rights holders in the fishery. End quote. By analogy, in the Aboriginal title context, this might entail that, quote, governments accommodate the participation of Aboriginal peoples in the development of the resources of British Columbia, end quote. That's from Delgamuk. As Chief Justice Lemaire explained, this duty of consultation flowed from the fiduciary relationship between the Crown and Aboriginal peoples. See Delgamuk. 66. Through these early justification cases, the honour of the Crown had emerged as a fundamental backstop against which the enactment of legislation would be measured. It required not only a substantive outcome which gave adequate weight to the Aboriginal rights and interests at stake, but a manner of dealing that was in keeping with the special relationship between the Crown and Aboriginal rights holders. In particular, the court identified consultation as a significant consideration in assessing whether the government's infringement of Aboriginal treaty rights was justified under Section 35. This did not change based on the kind of government action in question. Even in Sparrow, which involved a challenge to the Federal Fisheries Act, the importance of notice and consultation in the context of regulatory conservation measures was acknowledged. 67. Although these cases looked at consultation to determine whether an infringement was justified, it was the process prior to the infringement which engaged the honour of the Crown. As a matter of logic, then, the Crown's duty to consult is not dependent on the finding that an infringement resulted, but is instead a component of the Crown's overarching obligation to deal honourably with Indigenous peoples when regulating their rights. This is exactly the reasoning that led to the court's landmark recognition of a freestanding duty to consult in Haida Nation, Taku River, and Miccosukee. 68. In the companion appeals, Haida Nation and Taku River, Chief Justice McLaughlin found that a legal duty to consult and accommodate arose when the Crown had knowledge, real or constructive, of the potential existence of the Aboriginal right or title, and contemplated conduct that might adversely affect it. See Haida Nation and Taku River. As Chief Justice McLaughlin explained, the existence of this legal duty to consult, prior to proof of claims, was necessary to understand the court's previous decisions, which considered consultation where confirmation of the right and justification of the alleged infringement were litigated at the same time. The duty to consult could not depend on either the existence of a proven right or, by extension, proof of infringement. 
The fact that Crown behavior before the determination of the right could be considered in the context of justification negated any arguments to the contrary. See Haida Nation. 69. While Haida Nation and Taku River were primarily concerned with protecting unproven claims during the treaty negotiation process, Mikasu Cree made clear that the duty to consult arose in respect of established rights as well. The parties had asked what obligations the Crown owed when exercising its power under Treaty No. 8 to take up portions of the Mikasu's surrendered lands, quote, from time to time, end quote. Justice Binney explicitly rejected an approach that would find each subsequent, quote, taking up, end quote, by the Crown to be an infringement of the Mikasu's treaty rights, requiring justification under the Sparrow Test. Instead, he concluded that where the Crown's contemplated course of action would adversely affect those treaty rights, a duty to consult was triggered. Although, quote, taking up, end quote, was clearly anticipated by the treaty, the Crown was obliged to manage the process honorably. 70. Through this trilogy of decisions, the Court affirmed that the Crown's obligation to consult and accommodate Indigenous groups arises independently from its obligation to justify infringements of Aboriginal and treaty rights. In the duty to consult context, the controlling question is not whether the limit on rights is justified, but, quote, what is required to maintain the honor of the Crown and to effect reconciliation between the Crown and Aboriginal peoples with respect to the interests at stake, end quote, from Haida Nation. In this sense, the trilogy represents a shift towards mutual reconciliation between Aboriginal and Crown sovereignty and a further step towards embracing the honor of the crown as a limit on crown sovereignty in relation to indigenous peoples. See Mark D. Walters, The Morality of Aboriginal Law, 2006 article in the Queen's Law Journal. 71. Haida Nation established a new legal framework in which to understand the government's obligations towards indigenous peoples, organized around the principle of the honor of the crown. See Jamie D. Dixon, the Honour and Dishonour of the Crown, Making Sense of Aboriginal Law in Canada, 2015. This is the overarching framework in which the duty to consult and the obligation to justify infringements must now be understood. Under the Sparrow analysis, government conduct could always be scrutinized for consistency with the honour of the Crown, including the duty of consultation, irrespective of whether the conduct was executive or legislative in nature. No longer confined to the justification context, the duty to consult now forms, quote, part of the essential legal framework, end quote, of Aboriginal law in Canada. See Little Salmon slash Carmax. Like the Sparrow Inquiry, the duty to consult doctrine infuses the field of government action, requiring consultation wherever the potential for adverse effects on claimed or established Section 33 rights arises. 72. Subsequent appeals have reinforced this expansive understanding of the duty to consult. In Rio Tinto Alcan Inc. and Carrier Sakani Tribal Council 2010 Supreme Court of Canada decision, Chief Justice McLaughlin reiterated the, quote, generous, purposive approach, end quote, that applies to the duty to consult. Quote, government action, end quote, triggering the duty was not confined to the exercise of statutory powers. Further, it included, quote, strategic higher-level decisions, end quote, that could have an impact on Aboriginal rights or claims. See Carrier Sakani, citing Jack Woodward, Native Law. As Chief Justice McLaughlin explained, 
High-level management decisions or structural changes to resource management may set the stage for future decisions that will have a direct adverse impact on lands and resources and leave Aboriginal groups with a lost or diminished constitutional right to have their interests considered. See Carrier Sakani. This is in itself an adverse impact sufficient to trigger the Haida Nation duty to consult and accommodate. 73. More recently, in Clyde River, Hamlet, and Petroleum Geoservices, Inc., 2017 Supreme Court case, and the companion case of Chippewas of the Thames First Nation and Enbridge Pipelines, Inc., 2017 Supreme Court decision, the court considered whether an administrative scheme, namely the National Energy Board's approval process, could trigger the duty to consult. Noting that the board was the, quote, vehicle through which the Crown acts, end quote, the court held that its decisions would constitute Crown conduct that implicated the duty to consult. The Crown cannot avoid its duty to consult, nor the honour of the Crown, by delegating decision-making to a tribunal established by Parliament. 74. But I do not see this extension of the duty to consult into the administrative context as a rejection of its application in other aspects of the government's relationship with Indigenous peoples, especially since that question was expressly left open by this court. See Carrier Sakani, see also Clyde River. In Clyde River, the court reiterated that relevant Crown conduct was to be defined based not on its form, but on its potential for adverse impacts at paragraph 25. Quote, Crown conduct which would trigger the duty is not restricted to the exercise by or on behalf of the Crown of statutory powers or of the royal prerogative, nor is it limited to decisions that have an immediate impact on lands and resources. The concern is for adverse impacts, however made upon Aboriginal and treaty rights. And indeed, the goal of consultation is to identify, minimize, and address adverse impacts where possible. See Carrier Sakani, end quote. 75. Although the law of judicial review which applies to the exercise of statutory powers or the royal prerogative is often implicated in consultation cases, the duty to consult itself attaches to all exercises of crown power, including legislative action. 76. Haida Nation and Sparrow provide distinctive analyses based not on the type of government action at issue, but on the nature of the engagement with Section 35 rights. Sparrow provides a framework for determining whether government action, including the exercise of legislative or executive authority, constitutes an infringement of Section 35 rights, and whether that infringement can be justified. Haida Nation, on the other hand, obliges the government to consult when it contemplates action that has the potential to adversely affect those same rights and claims. Together, these complementary obligations ensure that the honour of the Crown is upheld throughout all actions which engage its special relationship with Indigenous peoples. The government has both the obligation to consult and the obligation to justify infringements. Neither duty takes away from the other, and each can be owed and breached independently. 77. The coextensive nature of these two duties was confirmed in Chicotan Nation and British Columbia 2014 Supreme Court decision per Chief Justice McLaughlin. As this case makes clear, the procedural duty to consult applies in addition to the government's substantive obligations to act in a way that is consistent with Aboriginal and treaty rights guaranteed by Section 35. 
To justify an infringement, the Crown must demonstrate that it complied with its procedural duty at the time that the action was contemplated, that the infringement is backed up by a compelling and substantive objective, and that the public benefit achieved is proportionate to any adverse effect on the Aboriginal interest. See Chicotin. The same analysis applies whether the infringing action is legislative or executive in nature. 78. Because the rationale for the duty to consult applies equally as in the executive context, it would make little sense to adopt a different analytical approach where legislative action is impugned. Ongoing consultation is preferable to the backward-looking approach of subsequent challenges, since it protects Section 35 rights from irreversible harm and enhances reconciliation. Most importantly, this approach recognizes that the legislative sphere is not excluded from the honor of the crown, which attaches to all exercises of sovereignty. Both grounded in the honor of the crown, the Haida Nation and Sparrow frameworks cover all areas of decision-making equally, providing for consultation where the potential for adverse effects arise and the obligation to provide justification where infringements result. To revive a pre-Haida Nation state of affairs in this context would essentially extinguish the honor of the Crown in the legislative process by conflating the government's duty to consult with its distinct obligation to justify infringements. 79. Endorsing such a void in the honor of the Crown would also leave a corresponding gap in the Section 35 framework. Haida Nation provides consultation remedies on a reduced threshold based on the potential for adverse effects on a claimed or asserted right. If legislative decisions were only subject to the Sparrow framework, Indigenous groups with established rights would be required to meet the more onerous infringement threshold in order to access consultation rights, and those with unproven claims would be excluded entirely. Adverse effects which do not rise to the level of a prima facie infringement would be without remedy, leaving Aboriginal rights holders vulnerable to the same to the same government objectives carried out through legislative rather than executive action. 80. This result would be contrary to the spirit of the court's decision in Haida Nation and would sit uncomfortably with the approach adopted in Mikasu Cree. Where the government takes up land under Treaty No. 8, it is not appropriate to move directly to a Sparrow analysis. The court must first consider whether the process was compatible with the honor of the Crown. See Mikasu Cree. Action which would adversely affect the Mikasu's guaranteed rights to hunt, fish, and trap triggers a duty to consult, whether or not an infringement results. The underlying premise of the decision in Mikasu Cree would be frustrated if the same action could be carried out through legislation without consultation. Notably, while Mikasu Cree dealt with the, quote, taking up, end quote, clause, Treaty No. 8 similarly subjects the Mikasu's treaty rights to, quote, such regulations as may from time to time be made by the government of the country acting under the authority of Her Majesty, end quote. This process, too, must be carried out with honor. 81. As this discussion reveals, there is no doctrinal or conceptual justification which would preclude a duty to consult in the legislative context. But this appeal calls on this court to consider whether and how the principles of parliamentary sovereignty and privilege constrain the justiciability of the duty to consult when applied to legislative action. 82. 
Parliamentary sovereignty invokes a concept that Parliament has the power to make or unmake any law, whatever. See Peter W. Hogg, Constitutional Law of Canada, 5th edition. Parliamentary privilege or immunity describes the set of powers and privileges possessed by the federal houses of Parliament and provincial legislative assemblies that are necessary to their capacity to function as legislative bodies. See Hogg. 83. I do not share the view of my colleagues that the separation of powers and parliamentary privilege necessarily immunize the lawmaking process from judicial scrutiny to assess adequate consultation with Indigenous peoples. The government's obligation to consult on the enactment of legislation which regulates Aboriginal rights has been considered a justiciable issue since the court's decision in Sparrow first identified consultation as a relevant marker of justification. With respect, it is difficult to see how assessing consultation under the Sparrow justification analysis would not similarly offend these principles. I fail to see how these principles would preclude enforcing the duty to consult under Section 35, but not modern treaty provisions implemented by legislation which provide for Crown consultation with First Nations in respect of legislative developments and amendments. 84. It seems to me that the issues in this appeal require this court to reconcile, not choose between, protecting the legislative process from judicial interference and protecting Aboriginal rights from the legislative process. As my colleagues explain, the concepts of parliamentary sovereignty and parliamentary privilege are central to ensuring that the legislative branch of government is able to do its work without undue interference. See Ontario and Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario, 2013 Supreme Court of Canada Decision. See also Canada House of Commons and Vade, 2005 Supreme Court. See also New Brunswick Broadcasting Co. and Nova Scotia Speaker of the House of Assembly, 1993 Supreme Court case. But these concepts cannot displace the honour of the Crown. The jurisprudence makes clear that the right of Aboriginal groups to be consulted on decisions that may adversely affect their interests is not merely political, but a legal right with constitutional force. See Haida Nation and see also Sparrow. I do not accept an approach that replaces an enforceable legal right to consultation with a vague and unenforceable right to, quote, honorable dealing, end quote. The duty to consult is not a suggestion to consult. It is a duty. Just as the honor of the crown is not a mere, quote, incantation, end quote, or aspirational goal. See Haida Nation. 85. There is no doubt that the honor of the crown and the corresponding duty to consult may have an impact on the legislative process. But that is inevitable if the guarantee under Section 35 is to be taken seriously. Adjustments to the legislative process cannot justify the erasure of constitutionally mandated rights. Indeed, there would be little point in having a constitution if legislatures could proceed as if it did not exist when expedient. 86. In Sparrow, the court found it impossible to conceive of Section 35 as anything other than a constitutional limit on the exercise of parliamentary sovereignty. It seems to me quite ironic that parliamentary sovereignty would now be used as a shield to prevent the Moose claim for consultation. With respect, such an approach reactivates the happily silenced spirit of St. Catherine's Milling and Lumber Company and the Queen, 1888 decision of the Privy Council, where Aboriginal rights were, quote, dependent upon the goodwill of the sovereign, end quote.
87. The fact that these rights are political in implication does not detract from their enforceability in law, but highlights their essential role in reconciling Aboriginal and Crown sovereignty. Our Constitution places a responsibility on the executive and legislative branches, along with Indigenous leaders, to collaborate and reconcile competing claims and historical grievances. See Dixon. This has been described as a generative constitutional order, which, quote, mandates the Crown to negotiate with Aboriginal people for the reconciliation of their rights in a contemporary form that balances their needs with the interests of the broader society, end quote. And that's from Brian Slattery, Aboriginal Rights and the Honour of the Crown, 2005 article in the SCLR. See also Carrier Sakandi. This process is supported by the judiciary's role in enforcing the honour of the Crown and holding the Crown accountable where that standard is not met. Unilateral action is the very antithesis of honour and reconciliation, concepts which underlie both the duty to consult and the very premise of modern Aboriginal law. See Mitchell. 88. Cases which advocate against the intrusion into the parliamentary process must therefore be read in the context of a duty that is not only a constitutional imperative, but a recognition of the limits of the Crown's sovereignty itself. The unique nature of Section 35 means that its limits can be distinguished from cases which considered the impact of other rights and obligations on parliamentary sovereignty. In New Brunswick Broadcasting Co., Broadcasting companies had challenged the New Brunswick House of Assembly's ban on television cameras as being contrary to Section 2B of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which protects freedom of the press and other media communication. Justice McLaughlin was of the view that the reallocation of powers affected by the Charter did not go to the extreme of removing the legislature's inherent constitutional right to exclude strangers from its chamber. However, while the Charter defines a sphere of rights for individuals that are protected from state action, the majority of the Constitution, including Section 35, allocates power between governing entities, such as the division of powers between provincial and federal governments, or the separation of powers between the branches of government. In the same way, Section 35 defines the relationship between the sovereignty of the Crown and the, quote, Aboriginal peoples of Canada, end quote mandating a process of reconciliation between the Crown and Indigenous groups. 89. Similarly, in Authorson and Canada Attorney General, 2003 Supreme Court decision per Justice Major, the issue was whether the Canadian Bill of Rights provided any due process protections for veterans when Parliament enacted legislation to make interest debt unenforceable. Justice Major noted that, quote, parliamentary tradition makes it clear that the only procedure due any citizen of Canada is that proposed legislation receive three readings in the Senate and House of Commons, and that it receive royal assent, end quote. But the relevance of this decision is necessarily limited by its context as a Bill of Rights case, which unlike the Constitution Act 1982, applies only to enacted legislation. As well, Justice Major's concern that the implementation of the Bill of Rights urged by the applicants, quote, would effectively amend the Canadian Constitution, end quote, is less compelling in the Section 35 context, where the limitations do in fact result from a constitutional amendment. Further, as Section 35 makes clear, it is inappropriate to equate Aboriginal peoples with, quote, any citizen of Canada, end quote, particularly when considering the procedural rights owed under the Constitution. 90. 
In fact, other cases specifically contemplate the imposition of constitutional norms on the legislative process. For example, reference re-resolution to amend the Constitution, a 1981 Supreme Court case relied on in Authorson, noted that the self-definitional nature of legislative procedure is, quote, subject to any overriding constitutional or self-imposed statutory or indoor prescription, end quote. The Reference Re-Canada Assistance Plan, British Columbia, 1991 Supreme Court case, which articulates a strong protection for the formulation and introduction of a bill against court intervention, specifically leads aside the issue of review under the Charter, where a guaranteed right could be affected. As discussed above, although New Brunswick Broadcasting Co. suggests that procedural requirements will not readily be imposed in the Charter context, I am doubtful as to whether the reasoning is compelling when faced with a constitutional imperative under Section 35. 91. While the judiciary must respect the separate roles of each institution in our constitutional order, it is our own role to maintain the rule of law and protect the rights guaranteed by the Constitution. See Criminal Lawyers Association, see also New Brunswick Broadcasting Co. It would be a mistake, in my respectful view, to interpret parliamentary sovereignty in a way that eradicates the obligations under the honor of the Crown that arose at its assertion. Like all constitutional principles, parliamentary sovereignty must be balanced against other aspects of our constitutional order, including the duty to consult. See Zachary Davis, The Duty to Consult and Legislative Action. 2016 article in the Saskatchewan Law Review, quote, sovereign will, end quote, alone does not itself indicate legitimacy in the context of a constitutional democracy characterized by competing values, rights, and obligations. See Reference Re Succession of Quebec, 1998. 92. Although parliamentary sovereignty cannot replace the honor of the crown, its force as a constitutional principle must be given adequate weight to achieve an appropriate balance between these concepts. The flexibility inherent in the duty to consult doctrine should also be used to account for the wider area of discretion that legislatures must be afforded in the legislative context. Since the content of the duty to consult depends heavily on the circumstances, I see no reason why the unique challenge raised in the legislative sphere cannot be addressed by the spectrum of consultation and accommodation duties that may arise. See Delgamuk, see also Haida Nation. Commonly observed duties of consultation, such as notice to affected parties and the opportunity to make submissions, are hardly foreign to the lawmaking process. Further, not every legislative effort will attract a duty of consultation. The duty is only triggered where the Crown, with knowledge of the potential existence of the Aboriginal right or title in question, contemplates enacting legislation that might adversely affect it. These potential impacts must be sufficiently foreseeable and direct to engage the honour of the Crown. 93. The procedure and scope of remedies available where the government breaches its duty to consult in the lawmaking process will also necessarily be limited by the constitutional balance between the judiciary and the legislature. On judicial review of executive action, consultation challenges are often initiated prior to the decision being made, and common remedies include an order for consultation, appointment of a mediator, and ongoing court supervision. See Newman, see also Clyde River. Conversely, in my view, institutional constraints in the legislative context require the applicant's challenge existing legislation. 
It would unduly interfere with the legislative process to allow direct challenges to a legislature's procedures prior to the enactment of legislation. Parliament has exclusive control over its own proceedings, which should be respected by the courts. See New Brunswick Broadcasting Co. While it is not the role of the courts to dictate the procedures legislatures adopt to fulfill their consultation obligations, they may consider whether the chosen process accords with the special relationship between the Crown and Indigenous peoples of Canada. This need not be any more onerous than the judicial oversight already conducted under the Sparrow Justification Inquiry. 94. Challenging existing legislation on procedural grounds is not a novel proposition in Canadian law. In British Columbia Teachers Federation and British Columbia, 2016 Supreme Court, reversing 2015 British Columbia Court of Appeal, the majority of the court endorsed Justice Donald's approach to collective bargaining rights under Section 2D of the Charter in the British Columbia Court of Appeal that would permit courts to consider a lack of consultation in the legislative context. Justice Donald, in his dissent, held that Parliament could not act unilaterally through legislation to amend employment terms without satisfying its constitutional obligations to engage in pre-legislative consultation as a substitute for collective bargaining under Section 2D. Similarly to the duty to consult in the Aboriginal context, freedom of association in the labor relations context guarantees the right to a meaningful process in which to pursue workplace goals. See Health Services and Support, Facilities Subsector Bargaining Association and British Columbia, 2007 Supreme Court of Canada decision. See also Saskatchewan Federation of Labor and Saskatchewan, 2015 Supreme Court of Canada decision. 95. In his reasons, Justice Donald recognized that it made no difference to the employee's Section 2D rights whether the terms of employment were captured in a traditional collective agreement or through the passage of legislation. Even in the legislative context, a charter breach could be grounded in the government's failure to consult in good faith prior to enactment. Justice Donald was alive to the responsibility of the courts to monitor and restrain government actions to maintain a check on power imbalance in the labor relations context. Quote, an obligation to consult in this context does not unduly restrict the legislature any more than all the other rights and freedoms enumerated in the Charter restrict the legislature, end quote. Nor does the honor of the Crown under Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982. 96. However, this does not mean that a successful Haida challenge will necessarily invalidate legislation. The duty to consult is about encouraging governments to consider their effects on Indigenous communities and consult proactively, and should not replace the Sparrow Infringement Test or become a means by which legislation is routinely struck down. See Newman. In this sense, the duty to consult differs from constitutional and self-imposed manner and form requirements, which are another accepted instance of court review of legislative processes. See, for example, re-Manitoba Language Rights, 1985 Supreme Court of Canada Decision, Gallant and the King, 1949 Prince Edward Island Supreme Court Decision, per Chief Justice Campbell. Failure to comply with a manner and form requirement will result in the legislation being invalid, as there is, quote, no doubt as to the binding character of the rules in the Constitution, end quote. That's from Hogg. However, the duty to consult is a constitutional obligation that must be satisfied, not a rule of procedure itself. 
The test is what will uphold the honor of the crown and effect reconciliation in those circumstances. See Haida Nation. 97. Without ruling on the possibility that in certain cases, legislation enacted in breach of the duty to consult could be struck down by a reviewing court, a declaration will generally be the appropriate remedy. Declaratory relief in these circumstances recognizes that the ultimate purpose of the duty to consult is reconciliation, which, quote, is not a final remedy in the usual sense, end quote, from Haida Nation. In Manitoba Métis Federation, a declaration was issued to the effect that Canada did not act diligently to fulfill a specific obligation to the Métis contained in Section 31 of the Manitoba Act, 1870. This constituted a failure of another specific obligation flowing from the honour of the Crown, the duty to purposively and diligently fulfil constitutional obligations. See Dixon. Declarations are a narrow remedy that may be ordered whether or not consequential relief is available. See Manitoba Métis Federation. In the legislative context, a declaration allows courts to shape the legal framework while respecting the constitutional role of another branch of government to act within those constraints. See Canada, Prime Minister, and Qatar, 2010 Supreme Court of Canada decision. 98. Therefore, an Indigenous group will be entitled to declaratory relief where the Crown has failed to consult during the process leading to the enactment of legislation that could adversely affect its interest. Such a remedy has the principal effect of clarifying what the obligations and rights of both parties are in their special relationship and process of reconciliation. See Mohawks of the Bay of Quinte and Canada, Minister of Indian Affairs and Northern Development. Federal Court Decision from 2013, per Justice Rennie. Disposition. Paragraph 99. Since the federal court lacked jurisdiction to consider a judicial review under Sections 18 and 18.1 of the Federal Courts Act, the appeal should be dismissed. The following are the reasons delivered by Justice Brown. Part 1. Introduction. Paragraph 100. This appeal presents two issues. First, does the Federal Courts Act authorize judicial review of the impugned conduct which underlies the Miccosu Cree First Nations application for judicial review? And secondly, does the impugned conduct in this case trigger the duty to consult? 101. I would answer both questions in the negative. I agree with the reasons of the majority of the Federal Court of Appeal, 2016 FCA, 311. Sections 2 sub 1, 2 sub 2, and 18.1 of the Federal Courts Act preclude judicial review of the development, drafting, or introduction of the omnibus bills. Ministers of the Crown engaged in the development, drafting, or introduction of legislation are acting as legislators, empowered by Part 4 of the Constitution Act 1867. They are not a, quote, federal board, commission, or other tribunal, end quote, within the meaning of the Federal Courts Act, and are therefore not subject to judicial review when acting in that capacity. 102. Further, the separation of powers and parliamentary privilege apply to parliamentary proceedings and to the process leading to the introduction of a bill in the House of Commons. The development, drafting, and introduction of the omnibus bills are immune from judicial interference. In addition, none of the actions taken in relation to the development, 
drafting, and introduction of the omnibus bills can be characterized as, quote, crown conduct, end quote, which triggers the duty to consult. In this case, the impugned conduct is, in its entirety, an exercise of legislative power, that is, part of the lawmaking process, and is therefore not executive conduct to which the duty to consult applies. 103. While my colleague Justice Karakatsanis appears to accept that parliamentary privilege and the separation of powers preclude judicial imposition of the duty to consult, her conclusions are, with respect, less than categorical on this point. See paragraph 2, quote, court should exercise constraint, end quote. See also paras 232 and 41, quote, the duty to consult doctrine is ill-suited, end quote. Paragraph 29, quote, whether the duty to consult is the appropriate means, end quote. Paragraph 32, quote, courts should forbear from interfering in the lawmaking process, end quote. Paragraph 35, quote, this reluctance to supervise the lawmaking process, end quote. Paragraph 38, quote, an inappropriate constraint, end quote. Paragraph 40, quote, an enormously difficult task, end quote. For the reasons which follow, under the heading Part 2, Subsection C, the development, introduction, consideration, and enactment of bills is not, quote, crown conduct, end quote, triggering the duty to consult. Whether a court may impose a duty to consult upon the process by which legislative power is exercised is not a question of mere restraint, forbearance, reluctance, or of deciding whether imposing a duty to consult would be an ill-suited or inappropriate constraint upon that exercise of power. Rather, it is a question of constitutionally going to the limits of judicial power, which should receive from a majority of this court a clear and constitutionally correct answer. 104. My colleague would, however, go further, raising and then leaving open the possibility that legislation which does not infringe Section 35 rights but what may, quote, adversely affect, end quote, them, might be found to be inconsistent with the honor of the crown. In doing so, however, she undercuts the same principles which have led her to conclude that imposing the duty to consult would be, quote, inappropriate, end quote, in the circumstances of this case. Further, by raising the possibility, without, I note, having been asked to do so by any party in this appeal, that validly enacted and constitutionally compliant legislation which has not or could not be the subject of a successful th Section 35 infringement claim can nonetheless be declared by a court to be, quote, not consistent with the honor of the crown, end quote. My colleague would throw this area of law into significant uncertainty. Such uncertainty would have a deleterious effect on Indigenous peoples and indeed on all who rely upon the efficacy of validly enacted and constitutionally compliant laws. 105. I therefore cannot endorse Justice Karakatsanis's reasons. While agreeing with her that the appeal should be dismissed, I write separately in an attempt to bring some analytical clarity to the matter. The facts, decisions below, and relevant legislation are outlined in my colleagues' reasons. Part 2. Analysis Subsection A. The Federal Courts Act precludes review of legislative policy development and implementation through omnibus bills by the ministers and the governor, general, and council. Paragraph 106. First principles are instructive. The federal court is not a court of inherent jurisdiction. 
It follows that Parliament must grant jurisdiction in order for the federal court to hear and decide a matter. See Canada Attorney General and Telezone Inc., 2010, SEC 62. See also ITO, International Terminal Operators Limited, and Mida Electronics Inc., 1986 Supreme Court of Canada decision. And by enacting sections 18, 18.1, and 28 of the Federal Courts Act, Parliament granted to the Federal Court and the Federal Court of Appeal exclusive jurisdiction to review the actions taken or decisions made by a, quote, federal board, commission, or other tribunal, end quote. 107. Section 2, sub 1 of the Federal Courts Act defines, quote, federal board, commission, or other tribunal, end quote, as follows. Quote, definitions. 2, sub 1 in this act. Federal board, commission, or other tribunal means any body, person, or persons having, exercising, or purporting to exercise jurisdiction or powers conferred by or under an act of parliament or by or under any order made pursuant to a prerogative of the crown, other than the tax court of Canada or any of its judges, any such body constituted or established by or under a law of a province or any such person or persons appointed under or in accordance with a law of a province or under Section 96 of the Constitution Act, 1867. End quote. 108. The Senate and House of Commons are expressly excluded from the definition by Section 2, Sub 2 of the Federal Courts Act. Quote, Senate and House of Commons, Sub 2. For greater certainty, the expression Federal Board, Commission, or Other Tribunal, as defined in Subsection 1, does not include the Senate, the House of Commons, any committee or member of either house, the Senate Ethics Officer, the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner, with respect to the exercise of the jurisdiction or powers referred to in sections 41.1 to 41.5 and 86 of the Parliament of Canada Act, the Parliamentary Protective Service, or the Parliamentary Budget Officer. End quote. Taken together, Sections 2 sub 1 and 2 sub 2 identify the source of the, quote, jurisdiction or power, end quote, being exercised as the principal determinant of whether a decision maker falls within the definition of a, quote, federal board, commission, or other tribunal, end quote. See Anisman and Canada Border Services Agency, 2010, FCA 52. See also Air Canada and Toronto Port Authority, 2011, FCA 347. See also D.J.M. Brown and J.M. Evans with the assistance of D. Fairley, Judicial Review of Administrative Action in Canada. And the removal of legislative actors from the definition of, quote, federal board, commission, or other tribunal, end quote, statutorily affirms the general principle, to which I return below, that where the source of authority for exercising jurisdiction or powers is found in the law governing the legislative process, such an exercise is not judicially reviewable. 110. Mikasu Cree First Nations application for judicial review was directed at the respondent minister's failure to consult regarding the development of, quote, environmental policies, end quote, including the implementation of such policies through the development and introduction of two omnibus bills, Jobs Growth and Long-Term Prosperity Act, Bill C-38, and Jobs and Growth Act 2012, Bill C-45. 
Official actions undertaken by the executive which are neither granted by the Constitution nor properly understood as an exercise of Crown prerogative must flow from, quote, statutory authority clearly granted and properly exercised, end quote. That's from Babcock and Canada, Attorney General, 2002, SCC 57. 111. Miccosukee Cree First Nation has not, however, identified any point in the course of the omnibus bill's development, drafting, or introduction at which the ministers were exercising a statutory power or crown prerogative. Rather, as the majority of the Court of Appeal recognized, the departmental legislation relied upon by Miccosukee Cree First Nation for its claim that the ministers were exercising their executive powers as ministers of the crown during the policy development phase of lawmaking, refers only to the scope of the minister's mandate and their duties and functions in carrying out their mandate. See Department of Fisheries and Oceans Act, Department of Indian Affairs and Northern Development Act, Department of the Environment Act, Department of Transport Act, Department of Natural Resources Act, and Financial Administration Act. 112. I note that none of these statutes make express or implicit reference to the development of legislation for introduction in Parliament. The ministers were not exercising a power in a ministerial, that is, executive, capacity. And it follows that none of the impugned actions or decisions cited by the Miccosukee Cree First Nations application for judicial review were made by a, quote, federal board, commission, or other tribunal, end quote. As a result, the majority of the Court of Appeal correctly held that the courts below were not validly seized of this matter. 113. This conclusion is also compelled by Part 4 of the Constitution Act 1867, entitled, quote, Legislative Power, end quote. Part 4 sets out, inter alia, the powers of both Houses of Parliament, the House of Commons and the Senate, in respect of whose exercise Parliament is sovereign subject only to the limits of its legislative authority as set out in the Constitution Act 1867. The development, introduction, and consideration of bills in the House of Commons are all necessary exercises of the legislative power in the lawmaking process. While cabinet ministers are members of the executive, they participate in this process, for example, by presenting a government bill, not in an executive capacity, but in a legislative capacity. 114. Miccosukee First Nations' application for judicial review therefore impugns the conduct of ministers who were acting as members of Parliament and who were, like all members of Parliament, empowered to legislate by Part 4 of the Constitution Act 1867. This fortifies my conclusion that the federal court did not have jurisdiction to consider Miccosukee First Nations' application for judicial review. 115. Even absent this jurisdictional bar, however, the separation of powers, parliamentary privilege, the scope of judicial review, properly understood, and this court's jurisprudence on the duty to consult all lead me to conclude that Miccosukee First Nations' application for judicial review cannot succeed. Subsection B. The formulation and introduction of bills is protected from judicial review by the separation of powers and by parliamentary privilege. Sub-subpart 1. Separation of Powers. Paragraph 116. There was disagreement before this court and the Court of Appeal about the scope of activity which is protected by the separation of powers and by parliamentary privilege. 
Miccosu Cree First Nation argues that while the formulation and introduction of a bill before Parliament is unreviewable legislative action, the development of policies that inform the formulation and introduction of a bill is carried out by public servants at the discretion of ministers and must therefore be viewed as executive conduct that is judicially reviewable. By contrast, Canada contends that the entire lawmaking process, from initial policy development to royal assent, is legislative activity that cannot be supervised by the courts. 117. I agree with the majority of the Court of Appeal that the entire lawmaking process, from initial policy development to and including royal assent, is an exercise of legislative power which is immune from judicial interference. As this court explained in Ontario and Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario, 2013, SCC 43, the making of, quote, policy choices, end quote, is a legislative function, while the implementation and administration of those choices is an executive function. This precludes judicial imposition of a duty to consult in the course of the lawmaking process. 118. The separation of powers protects the process of legislative policymaking by cabinet and the preparation and introduction of bills for consideration by parliament and provincial legislatures from judicial review. Again, in Criminal Lawyers Association, at paragraph 28, this court recognized each branch of the Canadian state as having a distinct role. Quote, the legislative branch makes policy choices, adopts law, and holds the purse strings of government, as only it can authorize the spending of public funds. The executive implements and administers those policy choices and laws with the assistance of a professional public service. The judiciary maintains the rule of law by interpreting and applying these laws through the independent and impartial adjudication of references and disputes, and protects the fundamental liberties and freedoms guaranteed under the Charter. End quote. In order for each branch to fulfill its role, it must not be, quote, unduly interfered with by the others, end quote, from Criminal Lawyers Association. 119. Admittedly, the separation of powers in our parliamentary system, quote, is not a rigid and absolute structure, end quote, from Wells and Newfoundland, 1999 Supreme Court of Canada decision, which follows neatly drawn lines. Ministers of the Crown play an essential role in and are an integral part of the legislative process. See Reference Re Canada Assistance Plan BC, 1991 Supreme Court decision. The fact that, quote, except in certain rare cases, the executive frequently and de facto controls the legislature, end quote, from Wells, does not, however, mean that ministers' dual membership in the executive and legislative branches of the Canadian state renders their corresponding executive and legislative roles indistinguishable for the purposes of judicial review. In Re-Canada Assistance Plan, at page 559, this court rejected British Columbia's argument that, while parliamentary privilege protected internal parliamentary procedures, the doctrine of legitimate expectations could nevertheless apply to the executive, so as to preclude it from developing and introducing the impugned bill. Quote, the formulation and introduction of a bill, end quote, the court said, quote, are part of the legislative process with which the courts will not meddle. It is not the place of the courts to interpose further procedural requirements in the legislative process, end quote. 120. As a matter of applying this court's jurisprudence, then, the legislative process begins with the bill's formative stages, even where the bill is developed by ministers of the Crown. 
while a minister acts in an executive capacity when exercising statutory powers to advance government policy, that is not what happened here. The named ministers took a set of policy decisions that eventually led to the drafting of a legislative proposal, which was submitted to cabinet. This ultimately led to the formulation and introduction of the omnibus bills in the House of Commons. All of the impugned actions formed part of the legislative process of introducing bills in Parliament and were taken by the ministers acting in a legislative capacity. 121. Moreover, the impugned actions in this case did not become, quote, executive, end quote, as opposed to, quote, legislative, end quote, simply because they were carried out by or with the assistance of public servants. Public servants making policy recommendations prior to the formulation and introduction of a bill are not, quote, executing, end quote, existing legislative policy or direction. Their actions, rather, are directed to informing potential changes to legislative policy and are squarely legislative in nature. Sub sub part 2 Parliamentary Privilege Paragraph 122 Imposing a duty to consult with respect to legislative development would also be contrary to parliamentary privilege, understood as freedom from interference with, quote, the parliamentary work of a member of parliament i.e. any of the members' activities that have a connection with the proceeding in Parliament, end quote. From J.P.J. Mango, Parliamentary Immunity in Canada, 2016. This is no anachronism or technical nicety. Parliamentary privilege is, quote, the necessary immunity that the law provides for members of Parliament in order for these legislators to do their legislative work, including the Assembly's work in holding the government to account. End quote. Again, from Mango, citing Canada House of Commons Invade, 2005, SCC 30. Since, quote, holding government to account, end quote, is the raison d'etre of Parliament, see Mango, citing W. Gladstone, UK House of Commons Debates, Hansard from January 29, 1855, see also Vade. Parliamentary privilege is therefore essential to allowing Parliament to perform its constitutional functions. As this court said in Re-Canada Assistance Plan at page 560, quote, a restraint in the introduction of legislation is a fetter on the sovereignty of Parliament itself, end quote. Parliament, therefore, has the right to, quote, exercise unfettered freedom in the formulation, tabling, amendment, and passage of legislation, end quote. From Galati and Canada Governor General, 2015, FC 91, 123. I acknowledge that parliamentary privilege operates within certain constraints imposed by the Constitution of Canada. For example, in reference re Manitoba Language Rights, 1985 Supreme Court decision, the court held that Section 23 of the Manitoba Act 1870 entrenches a mandatory requirement to enact, print, and publish provincial statutes in both official languages. In doing so, it imposed a constitutional duty on the Manitoba legislature with respect to the manner and form by which legislation could be validly enacted. Other manner and form requirements are contained in Part 4 of the Constitution Act 1867. For example, in Section 48, Quorum of the House of Commons, and Section 49, Voting in the House of Commons, and in Section 52, Sub 1 of the Constitution Act 1982. 124. 
Miccosu Cree First Nation argues that Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982 also creates a manner and form requirement, which applies to the legislative process in the form of a constitutional and justiciable duty to consult. But the duty to consult is distinct from the constitutionally mandated manner and form requirements with which Parliament must comply in order to enact valid legislation. Applied to the exercise of legislative power, it is a claim not about the manner and form of enactment, but about the procedure of or leading to enactment. And, as this court said in Authorson in Canada Attorney General, 2003 SCC 39 at paragraph 37, quote, The only procedure due any citizen of Canada is that proposed legislation receive three readings in the House of Commons and Senate, and that it receive royal assent, end quote. In a similar vein, although legislation which substantially interferes with the right of collective bargaining protected by Section 2D of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms can be declared invalid, quote, legislators are not bound to consult with affected parties before passing legislation, end quote. That's from Health Services and Support, Facilities Subsector Bargaining Association, and British Columbia, 2007, SCC 27. In short, while the Constitution's status as the supreme law of Canada operates to render of no force and effect enacted legislation that is inconsistent with its provisions, it does not empower plaintiffs to override parliamentary privilege by challenging the process by which legislation was formulated, introduced, or enacted. 125. Understanding the development and discussion of policy options related to the development and introduction of bills as being legislative in nature is most consistent with our law's understanding of the scope of judicial review, in the sense of judicial review for constitutionality, as opposed to judicial review of administrative action. Judicial review is, quote, the power to determine whether applicable law is valid or invalid, end quote. That's from P.W. Hogg, Constitutional Law of Canada, 5th edition. It therefore contemplates the review of enacted legislation for constitutional compliance and does not, as a general rule, contemplate the exposure of legislative processes to judicial scrutiny. 126. This view is, moreover, consistent with the text of Section 52 Sub 1 of the Constitution Act 1982, quote, any law that is inconsistent with the provisions of the Constitution is to the extent of the inconsistency of no force or effect, end quote. It is also consistent with this court's balancing in Crown Against Sparrow and Chicotan Nation and British Columbia, 2014, SCC 44, of legislative authority with the rights guaranteed in Section 35 and the goal of reconciliation by requiring that, quote, government, end quote, justify enacted legislation that infringes Section 35. This is, I stress, distinct from the framework governing contemplated or actual crown conduct taken under a part conferred in an enacted statute, to which framework I now turn. Subsection C. The development, introduction, consideration, and enactment of bills is not, quote, crown conduct, end quote, triggering the duty to consult. Paragraph 127. In Haida Nation and British Columbia Minister of Forests, 2004, SEC 73, at paragraph 35, this court set out the three elements which, taken together, trigger a duty to consult. First, the Crown must have knowledge, actual or constructive, of a potential Aboriginal claim or right. Second, the Crown must contemplate conduct, 
And third, the contemplated Crown conduct must have the potential to adversely affect an Aboriginal claim or Aboriginal or treaty right. The duty to consult and, where necessary, to accommodate the interests of Indigenous peoples is grounded in the honour of the Crown. See Haida Nation. 128. Quote, crown conduct, end quote, triggering the duty to consult must, however, be understood as excluding the parliamentary and indeed judicial functions of the Canadian state. The crown represents a collection of powers and privileges, and the term crown is primarily, but not exclusively, used to denote two aspects of the Canadian state, the monarch and the executive. In one sense, no activity of the state is independent of the crown. C. O. Hood Phillips, P. Jackson, and P. Leopold, O. Hood Phillips and Jackson, Constitutional and Administrative Law, 8th edition. That said, parliamentary and judicial functions have been clearly separated from Crown control. See the Magna Carta, 1215, the Case of Proclamations, 1611, the Bill of Rights, 1689, Act of Settlement, 1701, the Case Reference Re-Succession of Quebec, 1998, Supreme Court of Canada. The preamble of the Constitution Act, 1867, which proclaims Canada's Constitution to be, quote, similar in principle to the Constitution of the United Kingdom, end quote, is, as Chief Justice Lemaire recognized, the, quote, grand entrance hall, end quote, through which the principles affirmed in these legal institutions have become part of Canada's constitutional architecture. See Reference Re-Remuneration of Judges of the Provincial Court of Prince Edward Island, 1997 Supreme Court of Canada Decision. 129. Before us, Council for Mikasu Cree Nation disputed this, suggesting that the language of legislative enactment clauses in Canada, quote, Her Majesty, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate and House of Commons of Canada, enacts as follows, end quote signifies crown control of the process of legislative enactment. But this misconceives the significance of the reference to, quote, Her Majesty, end quote, in those clauses. It does not signify, as he argued, that, quote, legislation is crown action, end quote. Rather, it simply records the role of the crown in Parliament in the legislative process of enacting laws. 130. By way of explanation, Parliament consists of the House of Commons, the Senate, and the Queen. See the Constitution Act, 1867, Section 17. The scope of the Queen's legislative role, that is, the role of the Crown in Parliament, embraces, quote, three determinative acts that are part of Parliament's core functions as a legislative body, royal recommendation, royal consent, and royal assent, end quote. From C. Robert, the role of the Crown in Parliament, a matter of form and substance in M. Bedard and P. Lagasse, editors of The Crown in Parliament, 2015. 31. Royal recommendation, which is retained in Section 54 of the Constitution Act, 1867, provides for the procedure to be followed in respect of authorizing expenditure of public monies. Royal consent is a practice based on a convention limiting Parliament's right to take measures infringing the Crown prerogative or other Crown rights and interests. Of relevance here, however, is royal assent. This is because royal assent is what is conferred by the language of legislative enactment clauses relied upon by Mikasu Cree First Nations Council. Royal assent is also expressly required by Section 55 of the Constitution Act 1867. 
which provides that, upon a bill passed by both the House of Commons and the Senate, being presented to the Governor-General for the Queen's assent, the Queen's assent or withholding of consent or reservation of the bill shall be declared. 132. Sections 54 and 55 appear within Part 4 of the Constitution Act 1867, and are therefore designated by the Constitution as falling within, quote, legislative power, end quote. This makes sense, because royal recommendation, royal consent, and royal assent are distinct from other exercises of crown authority. Unlike, for example, statutory bodies such as the National Energy Board or ministers of the crown acting under delegated statutory powers, the crown in Parliament does not, quote, exist to exercise executive powers as authorized by legislators, end quote. And the steps taken as part of the parliamentary process of lawmaking, including royal assent, are not, quote, the vehicle through which the Crown acts, end quote. From Clyde River, Hamlet, and Petroleum Geo Services Inc., 2017, SCC 40. As this court noted in Clyde River at paragraphs 28 to 29, quote, it bears reiterating that the duty to consult is owed by the Crown. In one sense, the crown refers to the personification of Her Majesty of the Canadian state in exercising the prerogatives and privileges reserved to it. The crown also, however, denotes the sovereign in the exercise of her formal legislative role, in assenting, refusing assent to, or reserving legislative or parliamentary bills, and as head of the executive authority. See McAteer and Canada Attorney General, 2014, ONCA 578. See also Peter Hogg, P.J. Monaghan, and W.K. Wright, Liability of the Crown, 4th edition. But see Carrier Sakani. For this reason, the term crown is commonly used to symbolize and denote executive power. By this understanding, the NEB is not strictly speaking the crown, nor is it, strictly speaking, an agent of the crown, since, as the NEB operates independently of the crown's ministers, no relationship of control exists between them. See Hogg, Monaghan, and Wright. As the statutory body holding responsibility under section 5 sub 1 sub b of Kogoa, however, the NEB acts on behalf of the crown when making a final decision on a project application. Put plainly, once it is accepted that a regulatory agency exists to exercise executive power as authorized by legislatures, any distinction between its actions and Crown action quickly falls away. In this context, the NEB is the vehicle through which the Crown acts. Hence, this Court's interchangeable references in Carrier Sakani to government action and Crown conduct. It therefore does not matter whether the final decision-maker on a resource project is Cabinet or the NEB. In either case, the decision constitutes crown action that may trigger the duty to consult. As Justice Rennie said in dissent at the Federal Court of Appeal in Chippewas of the Thames, quote, the duty, like the honor of the crown, does not evaporate simply because a final decision has been made by a tribunal established by Parliament as opposed to Cabinet, end quote. The action of the NEB taken in furtherance of its statutory powers under Section 5, Sub 1, Sub B of Kogoa to make final decisions respecting such testing was proposed here clearly constitutes crown action. End quote. 133. This description of the various aspects of crown authority, 
and also it follows Crown conduct, affirms that the existence of Crown authority in enacting legislation, quote, assenting, refusing assent to, or reserving legislative or parliamentary bills, end quote, is legislative. It is not an instance of, quote, Crown conduct, end quote, that is executive conduct, which can trigger the duty to consult. Subsection D, The Honor of the Crown, paragraph 134. The foregoing is an answer to the concurring reasons of the Federal Court of Appeal of Justice Peltier, who suggested that declaratory relief would be available under Section 17 of the Federal Courts Act, which provides that, quote, except as otherwise provided in this Act or any other Act of Parliament, the Federal Court has concurrent jurisdiction in all cases in which relief is claimed against the Crown, end quote. Simply put, the reference in Section 17 to, quote, the Crown, end quote, does not include the Crown acting in its legislative capacity. See Fédération Franco-Tenois and Canada, 2001, FCA 220. 135. It also follows from the foregoing that, contrary to the submissions of Mikasu Cree First Nation and to the views of my colleague Justice Isabella, that, quote, the duty to consult attaches to all exercises of Crown power, including legislative action, end quote, the Crown does not enact legislation. Parliament does. The honor of the Crown does not bind Parliament. 136. While my colleague Justice Karakatsanis appears to accept that conclusion so far as the duty to consult goes, she also raises the possibility that legislation which does not infringe Section 35 rights, but, quote, may adversely affect, quote, them, might nonetheless be inconsistent with the honor of the Crown. As she sees it, independent of any infringement claim, a rights claimant could seek a declaration that validly enacted and constitutionally compliant legislation none of which in law is the result of Crown conduct, nonetheless fails to, quote, give effect to the honor of the Crown, end quote. Otherwise, where, quote, the effects of the legislation do not rise to the level of infringement, or if the rights are merely asserted and not established, an Aboriginal group will not be able to successfully challenge the constitutional validity of the legislation through a sparrow claim, end quote. Permitting the Crown, quote, to do by one means, end quote, presumably by legislating, Quote, that which it cannot do by another, end quote, presumably acting pursuant to legislative authority, would, quote, undermine the endeavor of reconciliation, end quote, which entails, quote, promoting negotiation and the just settlement of Aboriginal claims as an alternative to litigation and judicially imposed outcomes, end quote. 137. It follows, says my colleague, that, quote, the duty to consult is not the only means to give effect to the honor of the Crown when Aboriginal or treaty rights may be adversely affected by legislation, end quote. While acknowledging that, quote, the issue of whether other protections are or should be available is not squarely before this court in this appeal, end quote, she nevertheless speculates that, quote, other doctrines may be developed, end quote. While, quote, we have not received sufficient submissions on how to ensure that the honor of the crown is upheld other than through the specific mechanism of the duty to consult, end quote, she nonetheless proposes that, quote, declaratory relief may be appropriate in a case where legislation is enacted that is not consistent with the crown's duty of honorable dealing towards Aboriginal peoples, end quote. 138. I note, first of all, that much of my colleague's speculation is inapplicable here. Mikasu Cree First Nations rights are not merely asserted. They are established Treaty No. 8 rights. 
As such, the only concern posited by my colleague, which could conceivably arise here, is that those rights might be affected, albeit not actually infringed, by the legislation which is subject to this appeal. By the legislation which is the subject of this appeal. 139. In any event, and in my respectful view, having acknowledged that there is no demonstrated infringement in this case, my colleague is searching for a problem to solve, while at the same time expressly declining to solve it. And she believes she has found that problem in what she sees as the potentially dishonorable conduct of the Crown in enacting non-rights infringing, although rights affecting, legislation, which I have already made clear is not really a problem here, since as a matter of constitutional law, quote, the Crown, end quote, does not enact legislation. In other words, my colleague undercuts the very constitutional principles of separation of powers and parliamentary privilege and the constitutional limits that they impose upon judicial supervision of the legislative process, which support her position that no duty to consult is owed in respect of that process, including legislative enactment, and in doing so she endorses the potential engorgement of judicial power, not required by the law of our Constitution, but rather precluded by it at the expense of legislature's power over their processes. Far from preserving what my colleague calls, quote, the respectful balance between the pillars of our democracy, end quote, this conveys interinstitutional disrespect. It would be no more, quote, respectful, end quote, or constitutionally legitimate for a legislature to purport to direct this court or any other court on its own deliberative processes. 140. Even putting that objection aside, my colleagues' reasons invoking the honor of the Crown appear to leave open the possibility that validly enacted legislation, which has not been or could not be the subject of a Section 35 infringement claim, might be declared to be, quote, not consistent with the honor of the Crown, end quote, due to some failure to uphold the honor of the Crown. But in doing so, she runs up against those same constitutional principles of separation of powers and parliamentary privilege, which furnish the entire constitutional basis for her conclusion that no duty to consult is owed in respect of legislative processes. The honor of the crown is not a cause of action itself. Rather, it speaks to how obligations that attract it must be fulfilled. See Manitoba Métis Federation, Inc. and Canada Attorney General, 2013 SCC 14. While she finds that the enforceable duty to consult flowing from the honor of the crown does not apply to the lawmaking process, my colleague in substance proceeds to treat the honor of the crown as the potential source of an enforceable obligation on legislators to either refrain from passing certain legislation because it affects rights writ large or not to do so without consultation. 141. In this regard, my colleague's reference to, quote, other forms of recourse, such as declaratory relief, where legislation is enacted that is not consistent with the Crown's duty of honorable dealings, end quote, is telling. For what precisely would a court grant recourse? Absent a Section 35 infringement, the answer is nothing, unless the duty to consult flowing from the honor of the Crown is itself being treated as applicable to the lawmaking process, despite my colleague's conclusion to the contrary. Irrespective, then, of how a court might cast the speculative, quote, other doctrines that may be developed, end quote, for example, as a duty to accommodate, a duty not to affect rights, or as some fiduciary obligation, 
the resulting obligation would be, in substance, reducible either to the obligation which the Mikisu Cree First Nation asks the court to impose here, or to some other formulation that still runs into the separation of powers and parliamentary privilege. While therefore I acknowledge that my colleague holds that there can be no enforceable duty to consult in the legislative process, the logic of her reasons nevertheless risks leading her towards the result advocated by Justice Abella, albeit via the circuitous and uncertain route of further litigation. 142. This brings me to a further objection. By raising and then leaving undecided this quixotic argument about the honor of the crown, which neither the appellant nor the interveners even thought to raise, my colleague Justice Karakatsanis would cast the law into considerable uncertainty. It is worth reflecting upon just who would bear the brunt of this uncertainty. In this regard, there is a degree of irony in my colleague's emphasis upon the honor of the crown as facilitating reconciliation, which she says entails, quote, promoting negotiation and the just settlement of Aboriginal claims as an alternative to litigation and judicially imposed outcomes, end quote. The effect of my colleague's reasons would be quite the opposite. She invites Section 35 rights holders, that is, Indigenous peoples themselves, to spend many years and considerable resources litigating on the faint possibility that they have identified some, quote, other form of recourse, end quote, that this court finds appropriate. In other words, even though, quote, true reconciliation is rarely, if ever, achieved in courtrooms, end quote, from Clyde River, it is to the courtroom that my colleagues' unresolved speculation would direct them. The burden of achieving reconciliation is thereby placed upon the one group of Canadians whose assertion of sovereignty is not what demands reconciliation with anyone or anything. 143. As my colleague Justice Rowe explains, the effects of the legal uncertainty generated by Justice Karakatsanis's reasons would be felt by legislators, who are, in essence, being told that they cannot enact legislation that, quote, affects, end quote, but does not infringe certain rights that might exist, and that, if they do, they might be subject to as yet unrecognized, quote, recourse, end quote. This would leave legislators in the dark, possibly for many years, about the efficacy of supply bills, and therefore of government budgets, and of legislation relating to matters as diverse as the delivery of health care and education, environmental protection, transportation infrastructure, agriculture, and industrial activity, even where, it bears emphasizing, such legislation is validly enacted and fully compliant with Aboriginal and treaty rights guaranteed by Section 35. It would also generate intolerable uncertainty for governments charged with implementing such legislation, and for all those who pursue economic, or other activities in reliance upon the efficacy of validly enacted and constitutionally compliant laws. Part 3. Conclusion. Paragraph 144. An apex court should not strive to sow uncertainty, but rather to resolve it by, wherever possible, as here, stating clear legal rules. To be clear then, Judicial review of the legislative process, including post facto review of the process of legislative enactment for adherence to Section 35 and for consistency with the honor of the Crown, is unconstitutional. 145. That this is so should not, however, be seen to diminish the value and wisdom of consulting Indigenous peoples prior to enacting legislation that has the potential to adversely impact the exercise of Aboriginal or treaty rights. 
Consultation during the legislative process, including the formulation of policy, is an important consideration in the justification analysis under Section 35. See Sparrow, see also Tocotin. But the absence or inadequacy of consultation may be considered only once the legislation at issue has been enacted, and then only in respect of a challenge under Section 35 to the substance or the effects of such enacted legislation, as opposed to a challenge to the legislative process leading to and including its enactment. 146. I would therefore dismiss the appeal. 147. Canada does not seek costs. The Federal Court of Appeal awarded Canada its costs when it struck the Federal Court's declaration. As Canada did not ask us to upset that order, I would not do so. I would make no order as to costs in this court. The reasons of Justices Maldaver, Cote, and Rowe were delivered by Justice Rowe. Paragraph 148. I concur with the reasons of Justice Brown. In particular, I would adopt his analysis with respect to the lack of jurisdiction of the federal court to conduct review under the Federal Courts Act, the distinction between the Crown and the legislature, the preparation of legislation as a legislative function, the separation of powers, notably between the legislature and the judiciary, and the critical importance of maintaining parliamentary privilege. 149. To this I would add three main points. First, Contrary to the submissions made by the appellant, Miccosoe Cree First Nation, the fact that the duty to consult has not been recognized as a procedural requirement in the legislative process does not leave Aboriginal claimants without effective means to have their rights, which are protected under Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982, vindicated by the courts. Second, Recognizing a constitutionally mandated duty to consult with Indigenous peoples during the process of preparing legislation and other matters to go before the legislature for consideration, notably budgets, would be highly disruptive to the carrying out of that work. Finally, an additional and serious consequence to the appellant's suggested course of action would be the interventionist role that the courts would be called upon to play in order to supervise interactions between Indigenous parties and those preparing legislation and other measures for consideration by Parliament and by provincial legislatures. Part 1. Effective means exist to vindicate and protect rights under Section 35. Paragraph 150. Counsel for the Miccosoe claims that in absence of the extension of the duty to consult into the lawmaking process, their right to be meaningfully consulted by the Crown would be rendered unenforceable. This assertion hinges on an understanding of, quote, Crown conduct, end quote, to include lawmaking functions, an understanding that my colleague Justice Brown has properly rejected. This does not mean that the Miccosoe are without avenue to pursue their treaty rights in the face of impugned legislation. 151. As I shall explain more fully below, the means to challenge an alleged infringement of the Miccosoe Treaty rights are well established in the Crown Against Sparrow, 1990 Supreme Court case, and in subsequent cases. See Chicotan Nation and British Columbia, 2014, SCC 44, La Qualum's Indian Band, and Canada Attorney General, 2011, SCC 56, Paul and British Columbia Forest Appeals Commission, 2003, SCC 55, Mitchell and MNR, 2001, SCC 33, The Crown Against Marshall, 1999, 
Supreme Court decision. Delgamuk and British Columbia, 1997 Supreme Court decision. As well, the Mikasu can allege a failure by the Crown to fulfill its duty to consult when contemplating government action, as required by Haida Nation and British Columbia Minister of Forests, 2004, SEC 73, and subsequent cases. See Tanala Nation and British Columbia Forests, Lands, and Natural Resources Operations, 2017, SEC 54, Bain and Moulton Contracting Limited, 2013, SEC 26, Beckman and Little Salmon, slash CarMax First Nation, 2010, SEC 53, and Rio Tinto, Alcan Inc., and Carrier Sakani Tribal Council, 2010, SEC 43. 152. The appellant asks this court to recognize that the duty to consult is triggered by the preparation of legislation. In other words, at the policy development stage of lawmaking. On a practical level, this can be seen as moving the procedural duty first recognized in Haida Nation from executive decision-making, either through the operation of legislation or otherwise, see Rio Tinto, all the way to the initial stages of the legislative process. As the law stands, the avenue by which aggrieved Aboriginal rights holders can challenge the constitutionality of legislation under Section 35 is through the infringement justification framework laid out by this court in Sparrow, as affirmed recently in Chicoten. The Mikasu's proposal would short-circuit this process by mandating that consultation occur before any ink is spilled in the drafting of a bill. All legislation that could potentially have an adverse effect on an Aboriginal right or claim would be presumptively unconstitutional unless adequate consultation had occurred. Practically, this would transform pre-legislative consultation from a factor in the Sparrow framework, as described below, to a constitutional requirement. Such consultation would not be only with proven rights holders, but with anyone with an unproven Aboriginal interest that might be adversely affected by contemplated legislation. 153. It is not warranted to extend the law in this way. Section 35 rights are not absolute. Like other provisions of the Constitution Act 1982, Section 35 is both supported and confined by broader constitutional principles. The honour of the Crown arises from the fiduciary duty that Canada owes to Indigenous peoples following the assertion of sovereignty. It is an overarching guide to Canada's dealings with Indigenous peoples. See Taku River, Clinket First Nation, and British Columbia Project Assessment Director, 2004, SEC 74, quoted with approval in Manitoba Métis Federation Inc. and Canada, Attorney General, 2013, SEC 14. The current jurisprudence provides for protection and vindication of Aboriginal rights and for upholding the constitutional principles of parliamentary sovereignty and the separation of powers. It is important to continue to do both. This can be done while upholding the honour of the Crown. 154. Legislation said to infringe an Aboriginal or treaty right can be challenged under the infringement justification framework in Sparrow. To establish a Section 35 violation, a party must demonstrate that it holds an Aboriginal right that remains unextinguished as of the enactment of the Constitution Act 1982. See The Crown Against Vanderpeet, 1996 Supreme Court Decision, The Crown Against Sapir, 2006 SCC 54, or A Treaty Right. See The Crown Against Badger, 1996 Decision of the Supreme Court, or Delgamuk. Next, the party must establish 
that there has been a prima facie infringement of that right by way of an unreasonable limitation, undue hardship, or the denial of the preferred means of exercising that right. See Sparrow. Once a prima facie infringement has been established, the burden shifts to the Crown to show that the interference was based on a valid legislative objective and that the interference was consistent with the Crown's honour and fiduciary duty to Indigenous peoples. Along with other factors, including compensation and minimizing the infringement, any prior consultation is considered in determining whether the infringement was justified. It is settled jurisprudence that where a right is infringed and where that infringement has not been justified to the requisite legal standard, then the courts will grant a substantive remedy to prevent the infringement or, if that is not possible, to mitigate its consequences for those whose Section 35 rights were infringed. In the case of infringing legislation, provisions found not to be justified will be a nullity and will not authorize any regulatory action. See P. W. Hogg, Constitutional Law of Canada, 5th edition. 155. The significance of prior consultation in the infringement justification analysis is a strong incentive for lawmakers to seek input from Indigenous communities whose interests may be affected by nascent legislation. This is exemplified by provinces which have recognized the importance of consulting Indigenous peoples prior to enacting legislation that has the potential to adversely impact the exercise of treaty or, abog or Aboriginal rights in the province. See, for example, Saskatchewan, First Nation and Métis Consultation Policy Framework, June 2010, Manitoba, Interim Provincial Policy for Crown Consultations with First Nations, Métis Community Orders and Other Aboriginal Communities, May 4, 2009, Quebec, Interministerial Support Group on Aboriginal Consultation, Interim Guide for Consulting the Aboriginal Communities, 2008. However, Good public policy does not necessarily equate to a constitutional right. It is for each jurisdiction, federal, provincial, and territorial, to decide on the modalities for consultation in the context of Sparrow. 156. I now turn to the duty to consult recognized in Haida Nation. The duty to consult arises when three conditions are met. First, the Crown must have knowledge, actual or constructive, of a potential Aboriginal right or claim. Second, there must be crown conduct or a decision that is contemplated. Finally, the conduct must have the potential to adversely affect an Aboriginal right or claim. On the part of the crown, the duty to consult serves two distinct objectives. First is a fact-finding function, as through consultation the crown learns about the content of the interest or right and how the proposed crown conduct would impact on that interest or right. The second objective is practical. The Crown must consider whether and how the Aboriginal interests should be accommodated. The Crown must approach the process with a view to reconciling interests. Where it is shown that the duty to consult has not been fulfilled, the decision in question will be quashed and, in effect, the decision-maker will be told to, quote, go back and do it again, end quote, this time with adequate consultation. Where consultation has been adequate, but the duty to accommodate has not been fulfilled, Various remedies can arise, both procedural and substantive. 157. This court stated in Rio Tinto that any potential for adverse impact as a result of Crown conduct will trigger the duty to consult and accommodate. 
The Crown further stated that the duty may arise with respect to, quote, high-level managerial or policy decisions, end quote. The policy decisions at issue in Rio Tinto were made by the executive in regards to a particular development project. In that case, the impugned decisions concerned the sale of power produced from a hydroelectric dam on the Nechaco River. The court's statement needs to be understood in the context in which it was made. It does not support the proposition that a duty to consult is constitutionally mandated in the lawmaking process. This is reinforced by the requirement that the impugned decision would result in potential adverse impacts. This court held that there must be a, quote, casual relationship between the proposed government conduct or decision and a potential for adverse impacts on pending Aboriginal claims or rights, end quote. Counsel for the Mikasu rely heavily on the reasons given by this court in Rio Tinto, but Rio Tinto does not support the conclusion that the duty to consult must apply to the legislative process. In fact, this court explicitly left open the question of whether, quote, government conduct, end quote, attracting the duty to consult includes the legislative process. 155. While Bills C-38, enacted as Jobs, Growth, and Long-Term Prosperity Act, and C-45, enacted as, enacted as Jobs and Growth Act, 2012, modified the regulatory framework for certain waterways, the use of those waters was not thereby returned to a situation of laissez-faire. Environmental regulation, provincial and territorial as well as federal, continues to apply. The appellants submit that the reduction in federal environmental oversight, quote, profoundly affects, end quote, treaty rights by removing an environmental assessment process that would trigger the duty to consult. However, this is not the type of adverse effect that was contemplated in Haida Nation and subsequent jurisprudence. What is protected by Section 35 is the Aboriginal or treaty right itself. A specific set of arrangements for environmental regulation is not equivalent to a Section 35 right, and in particular, is not equivalent to the treaty right relied on by the Mikasu in this case. As this court stated in Rio Tinto, quote, the definition of what constitutes an adverse effect does not extend to adverse impacts on the negotiating position of an Aboriginal group, end quote. The adverse impact must be to future exercise of the right itself. 159. In summary, when legislation has been adopted, those who assert that the effect of the legislation is to infringe Section 35 rights have their remedies under Sparrow. Those who assert that government decisions made pursuant to the legislation's authority will adversely affect their claims will have their remedies under Hyde Nation. Other Crown conduct beyond the decisions made pursuant to statutory authority may also attract the duty to consult. See Rio Tinto where new situations arise that require the adaptation or extension of this jurisprudence, the courts provide a means for such development of the law. But no such requirement has been shown on the facts of this case. Part 2. Consequences for the Separation of Powers. Paragraph 160. In order to understand the consequences of imposing a duty to consult on the process of preparing legislation for consideration by Parliament and by provincial legislatures, one needs to begin by understanding the many steps involved in this process. I make no comment on territorial legislatures as they operate with notable differences from Parliament and provincial legislatures. Counsel for the Mikasu was of considerable assistance in this regard. 
by placing before the court and referring in his submissions to a document prepared by the Privy Council Office identifying the many steps involved. See Canada Privy Council Guide to Making Federal Acts and Regulations, 2nd edition. With slight paraphrasing, these steps are as follows. Quote, preparation. 1. The department prepares, analyzes, and plans. Ministerial approval is required to proceed with policy consultations. 2. The Prime Minister reviews and approves machinery-related issues, where applicable. 3. The sponsoring minister makes a decision on the policy options and recommendations to Cabinet. 4. The Memorandum to Cabinet is prepared. 5. The Memorandum to Cabinet is subject to interdepartmental consultation. 6. The Memorandum to Cabinet is approved by the Deputy Minister and Senior Management. 7. The Memorandum to Cabinet is approved by the Sponsoring Minister and sent to the Privy Council Office. 8. The Privy Council Office briefs the Chair of the Cabinet Committee. 9. The Cabinet Committee considers the Memorandum to Cabinet and the Privy Council Office issues a Committee Report. 10. Cabinet ratifies the Committee Report and the Privy Council Office issues a Record of Decision. 11. The Department of Justice prepares a draft bill with the assistance of the Legislation Section Drafting Team the Sponsoring Department, and the Departmental Legal Services Unit. 12. The bill is approved by appropriate senior officials in the Sponsoring Department. 13. The Sponsoring Minister reviews and signs off on the bill. 14. The Government House Leader reviews the bill. 15. The Government House Leader seeks delegated authority from Cabinet to approve the bill for introduction. 16. The Privy Council Office issues the bill. The House of Commons. 17. The Government House Leader gives notice of the Bill's introduction. 18. The Bill is introduced in the House of Commons, first reading. 19. The Bill proceeds to second reading, approval in principle. 20. The Bill is considered in committee, clause-by-clause clause consideration. 21. The Committee reports on the Bill, including any recommended amendments. 22. The Bill proceeds to third reading and final approval by the House of Commons. The Senate. 23. The bill is introduced in the Senate, first reading. 24. The bill proceeds to second reading, approval in principle. 25. The bill is considered in committee, clause-by-clause clause consideration. 26. The committee reports on the bill, including any recommended amendments. 27. The bill proceeds to third reading and final approved bill. Royal Assent. 28. The bill receives royal assent from the Governor-General. 29. The legislation, now a statute, comes into effect upon royal assent or, if the statute so provides, at a later date. Operation of the legislation. 30. Regulations are made and decisions are taken pursuant to the authority conferred by the legislation. 161. The situation is similar in the provinces, except for the fact that their legislatures are unicameral, i.e., they have no upper house corresponding to the Senate. The focus of the Miccosu's argument was on the first 16 steps listed above, relating to preparation of legislation, which they mischaracterize as crown conduct. Justice Brown has dealt with the confusion in the Miccosu's position in conflating the crown and the legislature. For an example, see the use of the ambiguous term, quote, legislative processes, end quote, in paragraph 50 and elsewhere in their factum. If the distinction between the crown and the legislature were cast aside, then the next logical step would be to say that the duty to consult extends to consideration by Parliament or provincial legislatures, as set out in steps 17 to 29 above. 
162. From another perspective, why should the duty to consult relate only to legislation? Why not budgetary measures, including the estimates? These are prepared for Parliament's consideration, and arguably they could infringe Section 35 rights or adversely affect claims to such rights. These are prepared for Parliament's consideration, and arguably they could infringe Section 35 rights or adversely affect claims to such rights. 163. If one breaches the separation of powers and treats the legislature as part of the Crown, then all of this can follow. The consequences of the foregoing are profound and warrant careful reflection. And I would repeat, the consequences would relate not only to the Parliament of Canada, but also to the legislatures of the provinces. 164. The first 16 steps involved in the preparation of legislation show that this is not a simple process. Rather, it is a highly complex process involving multiple actors across government. Imposing a duty to consult at this stage could effectively grind the day-to-day -day internal operation of government to a halt. What is now complex and difficult would become drawn out and dysfunctional. Inevitably, disputes would arise about the way that this obligation would be fulfilled. This is why the separation of powers operates the way it does. The courts are ill-equipped to deal with the procedural complexities of the legislative process. Consider the following practical questions that would arise if this court were to recognize a duty to consult in the preparation of legislation. 165. Four questions, each with several factors, arise directly from what the Mikasu are seeking. A. What types of legislation would trigger the duty to consult? Would it only be legislation whose focus was on the situation of Indigenous peoples? Arguably not. Rather, it would extend to many laws of general application, as on the facts of this case. B. In giving effect to the duty, which Indigenous groups would need to be consulted? How would they be identified? In the case of legislation of general application, might not the duty require consultation with all Aboriginal groups within the jurisdiction? C. At what stage in this 16-step process is consultation to take place? Might the duty require consultation to take place at more than one stage? As one moves from formulating policy options to deciding on a recommended approach to consideration and approval, possibly with changes by cabinet committee and then full cabinet, to drafting the bill and its approval for introduction. D. What would be needed to fulfill the duty to consult in various circumstances? How would this be decided and by whom? Three further questions arise from the logical extension of the framework that the Mikasu are seeking this court to adopt. E. If the preparation of legislation that might affect Section 35 rights triggers a duty to consult, then would not the duty also be triggered by the preparation of other measures for Parliament's consideration, notably the budget, including the estimates? F. And if the duty to consult extended to consideration by Parliament and provincial legislatures, then would not there also be significant and likely unforeseen consequences for the operation of legislative assemblies, affecting their powers and privileges? G. The relationship among the institutions of the executive and between them and Parliament are complex. What would be the impact on the operation of Cabinet, on the role of the Prime Minister or Premier as head of the Cabinet? and on the responsibility of the ministry to the legislature. Would there not be significant and likely unforeseen consequences for the conventions, practices, and procedures by which cabinet operates and its relationship to the legislature? 166. The careful reading of the foregoing list of 30 steps will have noted a reference to, quote, policy consultations, end quote, in step one. As a matter of practice and in furtherance of good public administration, 
consultation on policy options, and the preparation of legislation is very often undertaken, but it is not constitutionally required. 167. Similarly, I would note that under the jurisprudence, consultation is a factor in the justification of any Section 35 infringement under Sparrow. Thus, where an infringement of rights protected under Section 35 is possible by virtue of the adoption of legislation, there is strong incentive to consult. As mentioned above, it is fundamentally different to impose a constitutionally mandated duty to consult, the operation of that would inevitably be supervised by the courts. If Parliament or a provincial legislature wishes to bind itself to a manner and form requirement imposing the duty to consult Indigenous peoples before passing of legislation, it is free to do so. See Hogg. But the courts will not infringe on the discretion of legislatures by imposing additional procedural requirements on legislative bodies. See Authorson in Canada, Attorney General, 2003, SCC 39. 168. Finally, I note that legislation itself will not ordinarily give rise to an infringement of rights under Section 35. When it does, an infringement claim can be brought under Sparrow. Rather, what is ordinarily the case is that it is Crown conduct, whether through the exercise of authority conferred by legislation or by its own authority, that gives rise to an infringement of rights or to adverse effects to a claimed right. In such circumstances, Haida Nation and the cases following it impose a duty to consult, and where necessary, to accommodate. With respect to the duty to consult, the Crown's actions are reviewable by courts under the general principles of judicial review, see Haida Nation. These principles do not allow for courts to review decisions of a legislative, of a legislative nature on grounds of procedural fairness, see Attorney General of Canada and Inuit Tapirisset of Canada et al., 1980 Supreme Court of Canada decision. As a general rule, no duty of procedural fairness is owed by the government in the exercise of any legislative function. See Reference Re Canada Assistance Plan BC 1991 Supreme Court of Canada Decision, Wells and Newfoundland 1999 Supreme Court of Canada Decision, and Authorson. Part 3. The Role of the Court. Paragraph 169. As surely as night follows day, if such a duty were to be imposed, disagreements would arise as to the foregoing questions and many others. How would such disagreements be resolved? Where a constitutionally mandated duty exists, affected parties would inevitably turn to the courts. Thus courts would be drawn into a supervisory role as to the function of a duty to consult in the preparation of legislation as well as, in all likelihood, other matters, notably budgets requiring approval by the legislature. I agree with Justice Brown's discussion on the impact of imposing a duty to consult on the separation of powers. 170. I would add the following point. If the courts were to impose a duty to consult on the preparation of legislation, would not the next logical step be for the courts to impose a duty to consult on the legislatures in their consideration of legislation? In such an eventuality, one would have to situate, quote, consultations, end quote, somewhere in the sequence of first reading, second reading, committee stage, report stage, third reading, royal assent. If a legislature chooses to participate in consultation with Indigenous peoples pursuant to Sparrow, at what stage that consultation takes place is a matter of discretion. Yet the trial judge in this case suggested just such a remedy. 
that affected groups would be able to make submissions in Parliament. The trial judge's order stated that the duty arose, quote, at the time that each of the bills was introduced into Parliament, end quote. 2014 FC 1244. Such a result offends the separation of powers and would necessarily engage the courts in regulating the exercise by Parliament and legislatures of their powers and privileges. That would be a profound change in our system of government. Part 4. Conclusion. Paragraph 171. This brings me full circle, back to whether there is a, quote, gap, end quote, in the jurisprudence that needs to be filled. As I have said out above, no such gap exists. Vindicating Section 35 rights does not require imposition of a duty to consult in the pre preparation of legislation, of a duty to consult, does not require imposition of a duty to consult in the preparation of legislation. Indeed, the imposition of such a duty would be contrary to the distinction between the Crown and the legislature. It would offend the separation of powers. It would encroach on parliamentary privilege. It would involve the courts in supervising matters that they have always held back from doing. In short, imposing such a duty would not provide needed protection for Section 35 rights. Rather, it would offend foundational constitutional principles and create rather than resolve problems. 172. For the reasons above, I would dismiss the appeal with no costs ordered. Appeal dismissed.